Welcome everybody to Supporting Cast, the show about the undersung heroes of the film industry. You may not know their names, but you will definitely recognize their work. This episode concludes a mini-series on the incredible character actor, Beth Grant. If you're just joining us now, we already have episodes on 1994's Speed and 2001's Donnie Darko. And this, of course, is an episode on No Country for Old Men. I'm Seamus Quinn, and with me, as always, is Lincoln Vickery. That's me. And Charlie Davenport. That is me. Hell yeah. Hey, crush that. Really good work. Thank really you. Really good work out there. I'm trying, I'm trying. You, get it, it's, you know, it's almost professional. Uh, I'm like almost professional. That's kind of how I live my life. And that was definitely the first take that we did. Absolutely. First one, one, one take, take wonder. wonder. <laughs> also, if you are looking for a full breakdown of Beth's career, please listen to our Speed episode where we go into it in more detail. But the long and the short of it is she has a career spanning over 160 films, three Best Picture winners, and roughly 40, 42 years of just incredible work. God, All she's right. good. God, God she's, she's good. good. She's so good, and she's so good in this movie. She has so little screen time, and yeah. she's still like, would you say she's the most memorable side character? She's certainly up there. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot, a lot the in side, this movie. The side characters are, are pretty iconic throughout, including most shop attendants in this film are I'm really doing the oh most. Oh my God, he's so good. Before we get to that, I think what I really like about this and choosing this movie is that I think it's going to be something that we come up against a lot is that, look, sometimes when you are doing this character act career or this sort of thing, you're not going to be in every third scene or whatever. It's like you're there for two, you're on set for two or three days. You rock up, you hit the baseball out of the park. That's part of, I think, what we're talking about is like, it's not someone who is every day dedicated to this movie for a year. It is the people that like come in, help, aid the filmmaker's vision, all of that stuff. That's kind of so... That's why when I was like, oh yeah, she's really not in this movie a lot. And I was like, that's maybe good actually. No, and I think that because her and that whole, you know, we could have done so many of these actors who have those little scenes in this, like who really, yeah. they, but they're you, all It is really, it is It is a, a, a movie just full of guys. And like supporting <laughs> cast, it, you know, we could have a field day. We could probably do this film four times over with different actors who had had different scenes. And we will. I think that's <laughs> also just a thing with the Coen brothers as well, is that they are just, they just universally pick guys like mm. they just know what they need from a role they're incredible at casting it's not just them there are casting directors of course that'd be an interesting thing to do do, do, do casting, casting directors. directors i think it's a really good idea somewhere down the line we'll cover that but the the coen brothers just unsurprisingly is like some of the most beloved creators in hollywood just attract incredible character actors but i think the thing with beth that you go to Beth for, and it's so true in this, is that you need someone who can balance a really big role, like a really, sorry, big character, while still making it believable. And I remember when she, I was listening to the first interview, she talks about uh, a lot of her roles. She talks about this one and she was like, we got this wig and I was like, it looks incredible. We got this outfit, it looks incredible. But then she was like, oh, I don't know, I'm worried if it's too big. And then as soon as she got off the plane in West Texas, she saw like four people who looked exactly like her character. And she was like, okay, no, I can do this. I can land this. Which is just exactly what you get Beth for. And boy, does she fucking land it. Um, as much as we're saying it, like, uh, and this we'll get we'll get to it when we go through the film. I do think that out of all the side, the the guys, as we call it, the people who have like the side small roles, her character's kind of built up from the start. We know about her before we see her. Yeah, boy, do we know about her? You know, like, and there's <laughs> like a couple you hear of phone her, everyone scenes. talks about her. Everyone's like, well, boy, this lady's a piece of work. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. you see her, and you're like, 
Mm-hmm. Bit of hype. As soon as I heard the, the character vaguely mentioned, I knew immediately it was going to be Beth Grant. Like, oh, immediately. Yeah. As soon as she was like, what are you going to tell your mother? You're like, oh, yeah, 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 that, uh, we know who that's going to be. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, a quote from her uh, to your point. But, um, but when I went into costume fitting with Mary Zofras, I apologize if that name is wrong, um, who is so brilliant, she showed me her research book, Pictures of Women in 1980 West Texas, and they uh, had all those short perms, big hair, big glasses. My character was only 56, but these were old, old ladies. And we looked at these pictures and I said, Mary, should we do it? Maybe we should do it. Maybe we should really do it. And she said, yeah, let me just talk to the boys. So she's talked about like at the premiere, she was physically shaking because she was so afraid of it. And then she's like, but then it seemed to work and it seemed to make sense to me that they needed the comedy right at that moment, which I think is exactly the thing of like, this is maybe one of the most serious Coen Brothers movies. I don't think there's a more serious one. I don't think so. Like and True Grit, but like True Grit's kind of got is has like a goofy energy that they've yeah. touched on before. And the only time this movie is kind of directly funny mm. is is the Beth Grant character. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, there's a couple of like moments with like cutaways of bands seeing him on the like there's a couple of Cohen brothers. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like yeah, can, yeah. It's almost it almost made me interested to think like they nearly got through making an entirely serious film and then couldn't help themselves. <laughs> like they were like, but what if there's a flash cut of a band just going staring at him bloodied on the like you know that kind of thing so and I'm good. like they couldn't help themselves and I actually I love them for it. Like it's Oh yeah. It's a it's a great film. It's also I think important in that like cuz the f- the film is so um, kind of demolishing you and devastating that when you get to this character, it's a little bit of a relief to be yeah. like, okay, finally we're not uh, dealing with the horrors of the oncoming storm of whatever. Yeah, of unstoppable evil. Yeah. And like, it's funny, but it's also like, you feel for the character who, Kelly McDonald's character, who like, you mm. know, has had, just had to deal with a lot of shit, including this mother. You know, like she's funny to us because she's obviously a nightmare. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of, like, but the reality. The, she does have the big C, to be like, fair. Let's, uh, we do have to pay respect. No, of course, of course. The big C. Oh, my God. Uh, um, sorry, also, to go back, the costume designer for this movie, Mary Zofra's, Interstellar, La La Land, Catch Me If You Can, Fargo, Iron Man 2. I have, anything for you? I, I absolutely love it. I also have a couple of things that she said um, in the production of this film, which we'll get to as we go through, mm-hmm. I'm sure. But she seems like such a, like, such an interesting... Um, person and the way she thinks about costume as character. Mm. I know that's all costume directors and designers. That's part of what it is. But like, I I remember watching the um, making of for this movie and there's like five minutes of her talking and honestly it was kind of more interesting than even what Ethan and Joel uh, Joel Cohen were saying. Because Ethan, they were like, we adapted a a book. Well, they're so funny because they never talk about anything. And they're just like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of nice. Like, (laughs) it was mainly just compression. Um, Interesting thing about this movie, this was their first uh, adaptation as well uh but was this before um the yeah. H- homer what's it called uh <laughs> the odyssey the, uh well <laughs> oh brother where art thou oh brother where art uh one this was after oh brother where art thou but oh brother where art thou is not really an ad- adaptation of the odyssey because it's kind of like made up but this is their first direct adaptation like they've taken the book and it's actually pretty Pretty, yeah, uh, it is a, it is a it's director. Yeah. Apparently yeah. very, very close. Like yeah. there's a dialogue there's a taken. And, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a couple of changes and there's dialogue cut, but it's apparently right next to it. And also one of my favorite stories about the Coen brothers is talking about the Odyssey in terms of adaptation when they were making Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? They were in an interview and they were like, oh, so um, how many times did you have to read the Odyssey before you guys were ready to put it to script? And they just went, we didn't read it. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, what? It was like, yeah, we got the gist of it. It seemed like a good idea. <laughs> 
<laughs> they were right. Um, we they should also right. talk about No Country for Old Men was a book written by Cormac McCarthy, who, when we're recording this, passed away f- fairly recently, a kind of totemic figure in American literature. I didn't realise he passed away, uh, away recently. Yeah, How like, long ago was it? Like two or three weeks ago, maybe a bit longer, like a month ago. Oh, man. Yeah. I didn't know that at all. Yeah. So, it's, I, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of it's interesting to cover his work now, I think. <laughs> Should we get into uh, when we first saw this movie? Yeah. What our kind of history with it is? Um, for me, I remember this was a very early, because I was uh, 12 when this movie came out, and it was a very early movie for me that was like a big Oscar movie. that I And it was the first time I think that I was like, probably not the first time that I watched the Oscars or whatever, but I remember it being the first time that like my parents had been to see this movie and they came home and they were like, holy shit, this oh, movie. You haven't been allowed to see it, hey. Absolutely it's not. Plus. It's so violent. Yeah, true. Uh, <laughs> but I did, I did watch it when I was, I'm like the year after or whatever, mm. because I, Rebel. yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> guys, I'm pretty crazy. I'm kind of a kook like that, you know. I'm, uh, you'll never, you'll never catch me, <laughs> the police, uh, blockbuster police. <laughs> yeah, I remember watching it and being like, I mean, you know, when you're. 12 or 13 watching this movie. I don't think I fully grasped the full the fullness of I was just like this Anton Chigurh spooky guy. I watched this movie when I was like 21 and I was like why the fuck did it end that way? <laughs> yeah, 100%. And look, I'm not there anymore. I'm now on side with the ending. I think it's like a kind of exquisite ending. We, it kind of makes the movie. We can talk about the ending yeah. when we get there. Boy, did I fucking hate it when I first saw it. <laughs> I was like it's a very famous, I'm worried about spoiling it somehow, but it's a very famous ending. Spoilers for No Country for Old Men. One, the movie we're covering. Two, it came out in 2007. Just a fair point. If you have not seen this movie, do not watch this podcast because they're going to go through it beat by beat and spoil it. And I feel like there's certain- Don't don't watch it because I'll I'll just tell you every scene and then you'll have, it's like you've watched it. Yeah, (laughs) it it is funny to think about this movie more than either of the two previous ones. I don't think you can spoil Donnie Darko because quite frankly, that movie is beautiful gibberish. And Speed, the bus goes fast. You know what's gonna happen. This one, yeah, this one, the ending kind of is the wildest part of the whole movie. And- I fucking hated it when I first saw it. I was like, I really f- was left with that huge sense of dissatisfaction. Now I'm, I watched it and I was like, yeah, this is fucking sick. I get why everybody watching, loves it. It's watching the best part of the movie. It is the best part and of the movie. It is the whole point of the movie, right? Yeah, I so, think so. so. I, I would love, love to hear your- Watching it this time, it. I had, it, it brought up two things for me. One was Matrix Resurrections, uh-huh. <laughs> because I think Oof. this movie succeeds where uh, Matrix Resurrections, a movie I love, but I think this movie succeeds at both being the action film that it like wants to be and also commenting on itself as an action film and its kind of context around like what is the violence that you are watching and Matrix Resurrections very, is very much about that theme is like what is the point of this sort of storytelling or this sort of kind of not glorification of violence, kind of not a glorified violence, but watching this violence, doing this pulpy noir story, what is that actually teaching us? What is that actually doing? And the other thing it made me think of was the Major Briggs's monologue from Twin Peaks the, um, the a, a vision I had in my sleep last night as distinguished from a dream, which is a mere sorting and cataloging of the day's events by the subconscious. Do you remember? Yeah. You is know, that the, that's in the return? No, 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 no. That's it's in the, the, it's in the first, first it's, like, it's like in the second episode yeah. or something. This was a vision fresh and clear as a mountain stream, the mind revealing itself to itself. It's, it's he looks and it's his son and he just hugs his son. And it's, it made me think of that because obviously the end is a son talking about their father. Yeah. And this is a father talking about their son. 
and they're two very different visions of America from like two of the big American film, like Lynch and the Coens are like these two kind of like iconic totemic filmmakers. And there are these two kind of dream monologues that are kind of the a flip side of the coin of each other. Anyway, I thought they were just kind of like popped Interesting like into my head. Interesting that you are pitting sibling filmmakers against each other with the Matrix versus... <laughs> the Wachowskis uh, v. Coens. V. Coens, because... Interesting. I find <laughs> it interesting to talk about uh, Matrix resu- re- Resurrections. Resurrections. That, that's the, thir- yeah. the fourth one. Reloaded Revolutions Resurrections. Great naming. It is great naming. It is great naming. <laughs> um, no, the... I, I think that where that movie fails completely is that it is so Good. about IP and so caught up in its sort of re-examination of the history of this creative project, but so limited by the fact that it's made by Warner Brothers, so they can't really do anything about it. It's mm. not... I think it is a... Good movie, but it has a little bit of that like Space Jam legacy algorithm stank sure, about algae it. Is, rhythm. We're talking about yeah, the al- fourth one. Yeah, the yeah, fourth yeah, yeah. one. I have not seen it, but all I've heard is it might be one of the worst movies ever made. It's so good. Uh, it's it's genuinely what? Okay, we're so gonna have good. to do this it's because n- I genuinely. Oh yes, we'll it's, do it's, resurrections, it's, baby. It's not as bad as people say. It's not as good as Lincoln says. I mean, I, I, <laughs> true, true of largely anything. I was my gonna re- say the truth is in the middle somewhere. Always. Like, <laughs> yeah, my my review of most movies is that. Yeah. Um, I, oh, Matrix Resurrections is such an interesting film. I think it. I think it does. Have, it's a, it's a flawed film, but it's like it's crazy that she was allowed to do that. Like mm. that's just a crazy thing that she was allowed to do to be like, okay, Warner Brothers is paying me however much money, and then it's like, okay, this is a movie about fuck Warner Brothers, um, which is great. I, I think will that's say, good. I will say the good thing about that movie is all of the ideas. The bad thing about that movie is the ideas have no room to breathe. Mm. And I suggested that it should have been a TV series, and Lincoln tried to kill me. That's right, with a gun. Wanted to strangle Lincoln me. hates television. <laughs> I, 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 put, peaks, I put a silencer on my shotgun, <laughs> and I walked into your motel room and shot you with it and splattered you against the wall. I saw this movie in the cinemas because I was old enough to see it. Hell yeah, Kate, congrats. To, uh, to reveal my age too much. Just Wait. old enough. To see this well, then I think, I think that math is pretty clear for, for, was, any, for any Sherlock Holmeses at home, for any math wizards. Um, I was actually in Scotland oh, sick. on That's a drama not- tour, which I played a character. Is Scotland a country for old men? I, I think so. I think, so. I think it is the country so, for old men. Yeah, that's where I the old men so. go. The weather and the castles. That's where, where Tommy Lee should have gone. Tommy Lee would love it. Yeah, he'd love it there. He would. Sorry, you, you were, were you playing were, a character? Um, I was playing a character in this play that was touring uh, where I was a Hollywood starlet hey. who was dating the main character who won an Oscar, then developed an alcohol problem, and then hit me over the head in a domestic violence scene with the Oscar and knocked me out. And that was our scene. <laughs> and this place still not still running? Real subtle, real subtle work right there. <laughs> and what made it even worse than that was the storyline. It was a worse. Mu- it was a musical as well. Oh. Um, the worst part about it was that I lost my voice about a week into the tour. Oh. Yeah, right. And instead of replacing me, they decided that when I had to sing, they had a girl behind the curtains oh, with no. a microphone singing. Oh, no. And I would... Just lip sync. At that? And, um, yeah, during the Oscar fight scene, that was really fun because I'd be like, you know, talking with a husky voice and suddenly I'd be like, you know, yell singing back at him being like. Do you remember any of the songs? Do you remember um, any of the songs? And the Please lyrics were, you will never be happy. Um, destroy all the good things and the people who care. Like the feelings aren't there. That was right. uh, one bit when after he'd hit me with the Oscar. It was a domestic um, violence song. Yeah. 
Mm. <laughs> and I left him. Interesting. And he learnt his lesson. Oh, he learnt. Oh, he gets uh, redeemed. Educational play. <laughs> he didn't go to jail or anything. He just got clean and decided, decided that acting was. Uh, this is honestly the worst show ever. This sounds. <laughs> it sounds really good. And we toured it in high school. It was great. Um. Anyway, I had a great time. But I did go see Country for All. No Country for All. <laughs> uh, during that tour, I couldn't yeah. really speak. So I think I was wearing well, probably a scarf. Well, it's kind of thematic for this film. There's not a lot of dialogue in this film. Exactly. No, not, no music either. No, no music. Uh, which we'll get to. I um, remember seeing it and deciding it was the best movie I had ever seen. And I don't doubt, like, I honestly think at that time it probably was one of the it's best, got, best gotta movies I've ever seen. It's got to be up there when you're an undisclosed age. The, the other two <laughs> when, you're, when you're an undisclosed <laughs> age that's just allowed to see when an I MA15 mean, plus movie, um, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you haven't seen... Any you know. age I between. saw two other movies on that tour. One was Sweetie Todd and it was awful. And the other was Centrinians. So, oh, Centrinians, yeah. the Centrinians. college for bad girls or yeah. whatever it is. So really Good I did, movie. I did a great trilogy there, which is those three should always be watched together, I feel. Yeah, I absolutely. actually think all of those movies are good. <laughs> Sweeney Todd? I've yeah. never seen Sweeney Todd. It's not a good movie. I think Sweeney Todd show. is very badly, so, uh, <laughs> for a musical, the singing is bad. But mm. I think there's something- Luckily, that's not important. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw, I'm pretty sure I saw the Tim Burton Sweeney Todd before I saw the stage play. Yeah, right. And I loved it. And then I saw the stage play and I was like, I see that this is better, but there is, look. I as someone, as someone who is a Les Miserables, the movie defender, um, I, I I know your feelings. I love the movie. Yeah, Ladies. good, right? Ladies is a good, no, that's, okay, Sweeney Todd, and, I'm sorry, that is that is correct. This is wrong. This is in, this is, I've never been more offended by something than when I watched Sweeney Todd. I was like, I can't believe they've taken my I entire personality, which is Stephen Sondheim, don't, and made it into this. And I, I was a Tim Burton girl. I was, this has ruined my relationship with Tim Burton forever. That's I the never one that turned back. Yeah, that's, that's the, the one, one that, that broke you. Yep, <laughs> you got, I got through. You got, you got through. Planet I got of the Apes. through. <laughs> I got through. Alice in Wonderland had not come out yet. Yeah. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I got through had Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and went. Okay, a bit of a misfire, my, my dude. But you know, like I could deal with it. Then Sweetie Todd happened, and I went. You. I went. You will never be happy. As I sung our song together. That's what I did. Anyway, I just decided to dress as Sweeney Todd for a few months after it. Yeah. When did that stop? Sorry, but Tim Burton put on a t-shirt today. Tim Burton's production designer will always be incredible. We should do him. His name is Bo. I get there, but he's he's probably one of the the best. One of the best like production designers ever. Like so iconic, and he has a lot to owe that person. Anyway, who also directed Cat in the Hat, a terrible movie, should not have been a director. Wait, Tim Burton directed? No, 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 no the production the designer. designer mm, that's always his yeah. production designer did. That's an interesting one. Weirdly, Tim Burton's production designers have a history of going on to be directors because the yeah, production right. designer on Alice in Wonderland went on to be the director of Snow White and the Huntsman. So I think it was a different production designer or it may have been the effects guy. Yeah. I think it's the effects guy. Anyway, I saw that movie. I decided to make it my entire personality. Wait, no, you made No Country for All Men your entire personality? <laughs> I got you the hair and the bowl cut and I went, absolutely. Like, I remember just like, being, and this is a really, is that guy? Oh, this is a really boring <laughs> opinion, but like I had never seen Javier Bardem before. Yeah, well, it was his first, first English speaking yeah. role. So that, that's probably why. That's probably why. You, weren't, you weren't going to Spanish film festivals. <laughs> You never know. Yeah, you never know. 15. Uh, no, I hadn't. And I, um, I'd um, i never been more taken by a performance or creeped out by someone. Mm. And then I'll never forget when he, spoiler, wins the Oscar for this performance. In the movie. In the <laughs> wins movie. the Oscar. <laughs> Wait, he- why is that? That's a real, <laughs> that happened in real life. Uh, yeah, so when he wins the Oscar, I remember never being more confused by the most attractive man ever getting up with his hair slicked yeah, yeah, and doing yeah. his speech and like dedicating it to his mother He's and so being handsome. just a dreamboat and me just being like, 
Who is that? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's acting. That is fucking acting. It's not even just a bad haircut. That is whatever he's done as Shakur is a transforms. Well, it's insane. I actually read on like what he did to look like that. Apparently, and this is the weirdest claim because it also comes from a behind the scenes documentary made by Josh Brolin. It's on YouTube. It is. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I started watching that. I didn't get it all the way through. It has the weirdest tone of anything I've ever seen. Josh Brolin seems like a, a weird but nice guy. Yeah, he, he does. seems cool. But this like documentary, like the bit of it is everyone, everyone he's interviewing is doing a bit of being mad to be there. Great. But then when- um, Really good bit. When he interviews uh, Javier, he's like, how did you, uh, what was it like getting into character? And he's like, I started drinking a lot and I quit smoking and I put on weight. And it's like, I have not been able to confirm whether or not that is a joke or not, mm. because I think it. I think it's true that he just started drinking more and he put on weight to get the role, God and then damn. he quit smoking to look worse, to, to be angrier. Which <laughs> is like, the I want to be really itchy. It is the funny. It is the funniest method acting acting thing to be like. I'm going to quit smoking just for this role, and then I'm going to start back up <laughs> immediately got, afterwards. Soon as picture wraps, I, I am putting three cigarettes in my mouth and walking off into the distance. So yeah, apparently that's how he got to look so weird is treat his body like an absolute piece of shit. It, it doesn't seem like that character drinks a lot. Like he was, that's the part I don't understand. It's like- I think he just wanted to be mad. <laughs> yeah, he just- He wanted to feel- Shit. Shit, yeah. Also maybe and, it's just a full bit. And also he wanted to, I guess by the sounds like he, he wanted to find a way to, to gain weight quickly. Yeah, probably. I heard apparently he was locked in to play the role, but then there was an alternate because his scheduling happened. So imagine if he went through all that, stopped smoking and then couldn't do it. Yeah, the and then role. it was almost Mark Strong. Yeah. yeah. Which would have been good. Different film though. Uh, it would have been bold. He, but he would have been in Sunshine and this in the same year. And so I think he would have walked uh, <laughs> completely flesh ripped from him straight onto set. I mean, they're both movies where it would make sense for him to grab you and start screaming about God for some reason. Yeah, that's right. This movie is not No Country Robin without Javier, though. He really does I, take this film and run much away like with Sunshine it. is no, not Sunshine without Mark Strong's performance. <laughs> yeah, if it's Mark Strong. I'm right about that, right? It is yeah, Mark yeah, Strong. Okay. You're yeah. correct. And Who's if you, a fantastic actor and would have probably done a really brilliant job, but I just think that this movie is iconically belongs to Javier Bardem. There is a thing that they talked about with Javier Bardem and the casting of it, looking for Shigur, where it's like, he's the only person who's both not of the region completely yeah. and also more of the time in the 80s. And uh, like the costume designer talks about this, he's got a bigger collar, he's got a more modern belt. He's right. like, looks more set in the 80s. His haircut is kind of a uh, of the time whilst also being slightly off in a very wonderful horror way but i think if you just put a british guy in that role <laughs> i know they're cobber uh, <laughs> what's the most you've ever lost on a bloody coin toss then mate <laughs> God, you're, you're triggering me it makes it sound like it's going to be like what's his name carl urban from the boys doing it yeah i got you like me little cow prod then do you i got you same way as coin did i got I bloody got yeah, I got on a boat, mate. I got on a, the top level of Went a bus across to get the pond, here. didn't I? <laughs> we just lost a hundred viewers. Um, we didn't have a hundred. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I don't think that role works at all if it is just a British dude. It, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing about the movie that I want to kind of dive into when we talk about it is what like his what his character represents and whether that is kind of a reactionary conservative kind of view of the world and it's anyway it's something that we can we can dive into later i'm i'm 
I, yeah, after finishing the movie and then thinking about it for three days, mm. I'm like in a different place than just, oh, what a great, like perfect movie. that And that surprised me because we talked about watching it and we were like, we're just going to watch No Country for Old Men and be like, that movie just rules, which it does. It's mm. incredibly well made. But there's something underneath it that actually makes me a little wary of it. Interesting. I have no thoughts in my head left. Great. Uh, <laughs> should we dive into the movie proper? Should yeah, we, absolutely. Should we step, uh, take two dusty steps forward and look at Roger Deakins' beautiful photography as we talk about No Country for Old Men? <laughs> How'd that, how's that go for you? We start No Country for Old Men, as I say, uh, Roger Deakins uh, um, shot this movie and it starts with these huge vistas and these like clouds rolling across the sky, um, stunning kind of um, second unit cinematography. And then we get Tommy Lee Jones narrating over the top, a voice that can put you in your place at a thousand paces. He talks about the law and sending a boy to the electric chair. And he says, and there's all of this kind of beautiful, which I imagine is in the book, this beautiful kind of turns of phrase. Uh, and he says, I don't know what to make of that. I sure do don't. Mm. Um, which is just like, that's just yummy Cormac McCarthy th stuff, like, I assume. Kind of impossible to do if you don't have Tommy Lee Jones's voice. Yeah. Like yeah. he is from the exact town that uh, Llewellyn Moss is meant to be from. Yeah, right. Like he's from the exact area. So they were like, they were alternates for certainly Llewellyn and um, uh, Sugar. They were like, we have to get Tommy. It's, I was um, because uh, Josh Brolin played a young version of Tommy Lee Jones in Men in Black Three, which was, he does really well. Which he does really, really that movie, well. Movie good. That, Men in Black Three, secretly good. I can't Sorry. remember it at all. I remember the first one. Go, go back and uh, go back and Do a take marathon? a ride. Like, yeah, 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 you can yeah. skip two. Two's bad. Two is so bad. Two is really. Maybe <laughs> I think I stopped two's after worth two it. from memory. Worth it just to get drunk um, and be like, why is this movie? But Josh Brolin. Um, two has stuff. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Josh, Josh Rowland plays Tommy Lee Jones. So he was talking about trying to imitate that voice. And he's like, it was fucking impossible <laughs> because yeah. you have to, not only is he from this very specific part of West Texas, but he also went to Harvard and he's also like just his own fucking weird thing. Yeah. And so he was like, I really, really struggled with it. It took me forever. And also he's, he's worked with Tommy Lee Jones on three movies, this Men in Black 3, and then another one that I can't remember the name of. And they've never acted in a scene together. Because mm, uh, famously, the three main characters in this movie are never in the same scene. Yeah. Tommy Lee, Sugar. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of, they're never in the same room necessarily. Like the, when There's they're in, yeah. mobile, the, mobile. There's telephone calls in it and yeah. that's it. But also like- Chase scenes. Yeah, the chase scene. Yeah, but you never, uh, I guess so, but like Llewellyn You and never get a two shot of Anton They're and never Llewellyn, in the same yeah. shot. They never see each other. They never really see each other's faces. Well, yeah. they, he does see his face. Does he? Yeah, he in does that a whole thing where he says to um, Woody Harrelson's character, I know him, I've seen his face. And he's yeah. like, you've seen his face and you're still alive. Mm. And I'm like, Woody Harrelson, how old are you? Are you uh, are you 15? He looks so young in this he film. He does look young. He look, yeah. He looks okay. so weirdly young to me. Maybe I'm just used to him looking older. Yeah. I don't know, because I think he plays- Drew. Like, not as in he looks He's, old, um, he plays a lot. I, I'm actually thinking of The Hunger Games where he plays a hack of characters they have made him look older. I think he doesn't look that old in real life. Mm, acting, pretty old the now. Music, the music. The music <laughs> of the night. <laughs> uh, acting, colon, acting, the music of the, the night. Acting, of <laughs> acting, the music of your face. <laughs> acting, the music of theatre. So we um, first start with a, a young cop is arresting Javier Bardem, a real, like, 
we, we had it in speed where you just see kind of like a hapless guy and you're like, how many seconds of screen time does this guy have mm. before he gets immediately murked? The young cop takes him to a police station and like within seconds gets strangled to death. There's this stunning kind of circling camera down on Javier's face, which is like a, just a really nice little thing. And he looks like a weird Muppet. Uh, <laughs> his face goes so crazy. I had completely forgotten about this. So he looks- Incredible. In, he looks like inhuman. He looks like he is a, uh, yeah, he looks like he is a prosthetic somehow. Yeah. That's when you know you're in for a ride with this character. <laughs> That's when you know you're like, this person is deranged. Yeah. yeah. And at the start, I, what I will, I love the shots of him getting into the cop car and like just the four, like we don't really see much of him. It's just like a shadow in the back. And then when the cop's on the phone, he's still in the back and just yeah. stands up very calmly, does, you know, does, yeah. gets a, gets out of, it's like, and yeah. cause he's quite placid until that moment where he's killing him and his face does these crazy things. And you're crazy. kind of like, Okay, it's like if we didn't know this character was a psychopath before, we sure as hell do right now. <laughs> I will say I tried that handcuff thing and found what? it. What do you mean? Sorry, what do you mean? Pulling it from oh, behind. Right. I was <laughs> like, oh yeah, no, I tried to, to strangle a stranger. I, I tried to strangle. You a got arrested officer. and you're at the police station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was yeah. like, oh, I know how to get out of this situation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my friend Anton. <laughs> no, I couldn't get it past my butt. Like doing. Like yeah, it requires that. a lot of a lot of dexterity. I, no, well, I think it just means that Shigo must have like no butt. I think it's just flat back there. <laughs> Sorry, that's that. you're, you're like no, no, no. His problem, not he's not very flexible. I don't he's, think he is. He's just got no ass. I think he's. I think he's a man with no morals and no bum. The next time we see um, Anton Sugar, he's stolen the police car. We see the first time we see his cattle prod. Is that that's what it's called? No, right? it's, it's a, a cattle bolt gun. gun. Bolt gun. Uh, but it's used to it's used to kill cows. Yeah, cows. but a cattle prod's electric. Oh, yeah. I see, I see. Exactly. Not a cattle prod. I've probably referred to it as a cattle prod 45 times, so deal with it. We first see him, he um, murks this guy with his cattle gun, his bolt gun. Um, so now we see Josh Brolin. Um, he's hunting deer with a rifle. He tells the deer to, to hold still. Um, he misses the head but catches the deer in the leg and then tracks its blood blood trail um, or tries to track its blood trail, finds out that it's actually not a deer at all. It's a dog blood trail that he's tracking. I was confused about this sequence. Does he hit the dog? Does he hit the deer? Or does the dog take the deer? No, no, no. I think he hits he hits the deer, but the deer runs off. And then he gets down there and it's like, oh, there's a blood trail, I'll right. follow it. And then finds out that it's actually the, the dog that's passed away. Why am I worried about saying dead dog? I don't know. <laughs> uh, this film has a lot of dead dogs I in know, it. I know. And a lot of living cats. I can't, I can't. A lot of cats really survived this film. Yeah. And I think that's saying something. I think it is <laughs> saying something. And we will get to it. Um, <laughs> um, okay, I, my weird note on this scene, mm -hmm. I think Josh Brolin looks quite a lot like modern day Ethan Hawke in this movie. Yeah, I think that looks similar. Yeah, like yeah, I, I never that. thought that before in my life. And I was looking at this, it was like, wow. I also think this is maybe one of the first times I'd seen Josh Brolin when I saw this movie when it came out, mm. which is fair. Um, I know now after doing some research that he was in the Goonies, so I must have seen him when he was yeah. a child. Mm. Um, was he a child in the Goonies? Yeah. Was he one of the kids? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. He's been 45 for <laughs> since 1982 or whatever. How old is he meant to be in this movie? In his 40s or like late 30s? I think, yeah, late 30s. Yeah, because they, they say he's young. 30s. They say he's young. Yeah, I think because yeah. Kelly, his wife looks very young. Yeah, I think it's like late 20s, early 30s. I mean, he has an ageless face, yeah. uh, particularly in this movie. He, just well, he has an ageless face, weathered. but the age is... Um, slightly older than yeah. <laughs> he's not like a, the picture of Dorian Gray. He's like, <laughs> but like you could say he's you gone could put, through shit. Llewellyn yeah, he looks like he looks like it. an old president and yeah. always has. Yeah, he looks like he looks he looks like a man that's like. 
been to war. He probably looked like a man that had been to war by the time he was 19. Mm. But as good a time to mention as any, the original casting choice for this role was actually Heath Ledger. Mm. Yeah. Which I really, I think everything in this movie works so perfectly that you kind of don't want to pull out any piece and imagine what would have happened. But Heath Ledger is the one that I'm like, I do think he would have been Such a pretty boy. I think he would have nailed that role. Yeah. I don't think he, I think he's a pretty boy, but also this is like, Right before uh, Dark Knight, he's just done... I wonder um, if that's why, because that's the next year, right? Yeah. I wonder if there was... He wanted to be... Apparently, he turned down the role so he could spend more time with his daughter. Right. So, presumably, his daughter got a little bit older and he was like, okay, I'm going to go act yeah. in a big Christopher Nolan movie. Um, he, um, he actually... I believe died around the time this movie was released. Can you imagine if he's his last two movies had been this and The Dark Knight? Yeah. I like, mean... I do my like taking away from that. I do think one of the reasons that maybe it's good he didn't take this role. I, mean, I would have loved to see Heath Ledger in it because he's a great actor. But um, he did play Ennis Del Mar for um, Brokeback Mountain. That kind of like, yeah. and I think that's probably what like that's why the Coens kind of thought of him. F- thought of him. Yeah. yeah. So we know he can do that. Yeah. That would have been like that's kind of. But it also might have been like you kind of go sort of a similar performance. Mm. Very mm. very different tone of film. Mm. But like you know you yeah. go cowboy. But that is that's it. That's probably it. the likeless ends. <laughs> yeah. Regardless, Josh Brolin nails this. Josh Brolin's so good in this movie. Um, he uh, yeah is there are so many moments in this movie where he says something, uh, says like a monosyllabic word that carries mm. like so much weight to it. I've written a few of them down. Um, anyway, but while uh, he's following this blood trail, he doesn't find the deer, but does find the remains of a gunfight, a drug transaction. What do you got? I'm, I'm really deal. cool. A drug, a drug deal. deal. Thank you. <laughs> a, a drug, drug transaction. <laughs> a drug transaction. You know where they're, uh, you, you, you're handing Hello, over. You're not, you're not technically wrong. Yeah, that's but, what it is. But it's a deal. Hello, fellow criminal. Are you ready for the drug transaction? <laughs> <laughs> he finds a dying guy in a ute who asks for water and then finds a huge pile of drugs heroin if you will h smack dope the dying guy wants him to close the door uh he's scared of wolves and then josh brolin says there ain't no lobos i think it's interesting that 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 moment i love it a lot because it's implied later that like really what that guy is scared of is anton sugar and he just calls him a wolf i think is like what's supposed to be because if josh brolin knows the you know place i don't think there actually are wolves around but this guy is just like wolves man (laughs) like something is here which i think is this kind of like incredible kind of like semi-magical realism sort of moment of like Mm. you know the 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 metaphor of anton sugar as a you know oncoming whatever there's an idea as well um where wolves are referred to as like interlopers in this I I didn't write down the name of the short story but there's a short story where these two guys get in an argument uh, out camping they nearly have a fight then they resolve their differences and then for no reason a bunch of wolves attack them and eat them Right. so there's also this potential idea of wolves being like the force the chaotic force of nature that is outside of your control Yeah. which is what Anton is. Represents 100%. So then Brolin does this kind of uh, great thing where he starts like using tracker sense. <laughs> um, goes, he activates goes, his detective yeah, vision from he, Batman yeah, Arkham Asylum. Exactly. Um, and he hunts down the assumed last man standing from the gunfight. He tracks uh, that all the way to a dead guy under a tree. Um, and then there's this amazing scene where uh, Brolin opens up the uh, satchel, the suitcase, and sees that it's full of money. And then he goes, yeah, hmm. And then, like, we cut out of that scene. It's so good. Yeah, it's it's good. just the immediate acceptance of the call. Like, no hesitation. It's just like, that money is mine. Also fully improvised by Brolin. It was right. meant to be in silence, but he went, hmm. 
which is so good. I also love all the practicality of the previous two scenes setting yeah. up Roland. It is such a good, it is good character work all around. The first thing we see him do after he takes that shot is he picks up the shell so no one could find him. Yes. Which is all set up, you know, with his uh, time in Vietnam, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And then when he tracks down where the guy is, he sees just these two boots sticking up. I love the way this movie uses long shots where you yeah. just hold on it long enough and you're like, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. And then you slowly come into focus and you just go, oh, there's Boots. He's leaning against the tree. And just Brol and Brolin just pulls out a watch and he just waits there. And I think you can see on the watch, it's like 30 minutes. Yeah, right. He's like just double checking that there's no way this guy's going to get up and shoot him because he knows that he's he's got his back against the sun. Yeah, it he is, says like, um, why don't you shoot my dumb ass? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're like, yeah. It's, and I think that's why he's... Yeah, that's what leads him to be like, mm, I think I can go up there. Yeah, he just stop for shade. Like, yeah. it's so good, yeah. I have a question about Llewellyn's character with the money. Do you think he's just like, fuck yeah, money? Or do you think he's like, regardless of what happens, I'm probably dead because I'm at this scene. I may as well take this money. There is something in this movie about as, as soon as he opens the suitcase, the whole thing falls on him that he's like, oh, I mean, it's something, a kind of theme of the film of like, there's this like determinist nature to the universe. And there's this, th this thing where like, as soon as he opens the suitcase, he goes, I've run out of choices. This is the only way forward. It's actually kind of interesting thematically with Donnie Darko, uh, <laughs> just cause like he can like see the future ahead of him. And he's like, and that's why- He's traveling God's timeline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like there's only one way to go. Um, Frank's like, Go to the best psychiatrist. Yeah, and it, like it happens again when he brings the water back to the guy, and mm. like the whole thing is him being like, "This is an awful idea, and I know it's going to end badly, and I'm doing it anyway." Well, well, I think those are the two interesting things: is that he doesn't he doesn't take the heroin, which was one of the first choices that he makes. He's like, "That's too dangerous. That's too hard." As soon as he finds the money, he's like, "I'm stuck here." And then his big choice that actually makes the movie happen even more than taking the money is going back. So Brolin takes the suitcase back to his trailer park. He puts one of the guns underneath the house, but then takes the other. I don't really know. I guess it's because it's like a semi-automatic rifle. Yeah, he, he puts, so that's he puts weird the machine to have. gun under. He yeah. keeps the pistol. Kelly McDonald is there. She's so good in this movie. I um, was blown away when I realized it was- The girl uh, from Trainspotting. The girl from Trainspotting. Yep. Yep. And then you hear her in interviews and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, there's the great kind of uh, thing between them where she says, what's in that satchel? It's full of money. That'll be the day. Really good stuff. There's just a nice little cute domestic scene between them. There's, yeah, and Brolin's talked about this a lot. I think it's a very famous known thing that when they're performing that scene and he sits down on the couch, they were kind of really struggling with the scene and then they decided, oh, if they don't face each other, and it was like Brolin's big, big kind of thing, if they don't face each other and just talk because that's what people do normally and people that are very comfortable with each other don't talk don't look at each other all the time unless they're on podcasts and so it's this kind of it kind of just makes the that couple look really comfortable and it was just like you yeah you're like this is a married couple like yeah. this is like this and there's no kind of like hi there sweetheart made you like give big kiss for me like it's like pretty like <laughs> normal <laughs> sorry yeah. that's my domestic that's my romantic big, give big, big kiss, kiss for, for me, me. <laughs> like it's give Big kiss for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's just they, they're very comfortable people with each other. They yeah. live in this, you know, this is their life that we've walked into and he's just... Give big kiss. Give, give big <laughs> kiss for me. We cut to the dead of night. Uh, Josh Brolin is still up kind of thinking. My assumption watching it this time is like, oh, he's just thinking about the money and what he's going to do. But actually what he's really thinking about is, oh, that guy did ask for water. So he gets up, fills up a big kind of gallon thing uh, with water and he goes back to the scene of the crime and he goes to look for the dying guy. 
he's already dead. And then immediately the thing that he knew, like he even they, has the conversation beforehand where he's like, I'm about to do something really, really stupid. Mm. And then he does something really stupid and then exactly what he expects to happen happens. Mm. And then men with guns appear in the dark on the horizon. They were waiting for him. I, I, I was curious about this. Were they waiting or do you think it was just bad timing? I think they were waiting. My, my assumption is because they're like, someone must have the money and they might return to the scene of the crime. I think that like, makes the most sense. Yeah, so someone was like, saw that ute driving back and was like, Found him. Yeah. Um, yeah, they'd be absurd. I think there'd be different levels of people, like, you know, staking out the scene to see yeah. the returns. Yeah. Kind of because of the tone of this movie, I just took it all as like terrible fate. But yeah. Well, I, I think mean, you could take it. You could take way. it by the way. Brolin runs away, pursued. He gets shot in the shoulder. He makes it to a river and swims, chased by a very cute dog. There's the the shot of the dog swimming. He's having uh, the best <laughs> he's time. He's having the best time. He's like, <laughs> also, and then he immediately gets shot. That, that chase sequence in the dark with a lightning bolt strikes yeah, in the distance. And it starts at night yeah. and ends up at dawn. And I was listening to uh, uh, Roger Deakins on his own podcast, which is probably much, <laughs> much more useful to listen to than ours, uh, rather than me second secondhand explaining what Roger Deakins thinks, was talking about these huge lights that he got to imitate moonlight because there was Incredible. no moon. And so he just got like the most lights to put behind the utes yeah. um, so that they have these like incredible reflections, uh, not reflections, silhouettes. Yeah. Um, it's kind of one of the like- That chase sequence is so beautiful. I, mean, I think it's the most beautiful sequence in the movie. Yeah. For me, at least. I, I mean, yeah, I've, there's, hey, it's a good looking movie. It's a, it's a good looking honestly, movie. Honestly, this film is not afraid to have a protagonist shoot a dog in the head. I know. And this is a rare, like most people mm. really, like, yeah, we've got one of those, one, like everyone dies in this film, it's like <sighs> violent as hell. But shooting a dog, I, I'm always like, people really try and shy away. You know that dog? Dog was- Gonna kill him. Gonna kill dog him. Dog was gonna kill him. And well, also, he was having such a good time in the water. <laughs> he was having such a good time in the water. But also Josh drying out the gun in that sequence. Yeah, and he's like doing he it really, do, really fast. Do, God, it's so good. Uh, a, a less confident movie has you has him like take the shot and the gun misfire. Yeah. This movie is like, we trust you. You will figure out what he's doing as soon as you see what he's doing, yeah. which is a rule for this entire movie. Mm. Fuck. Also, it's that's definitely movie. not kind of the first dog that he's shot. That's another thing I got. I was like, yeah. these, these dogs attacking people. They're attack dogs. Like, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I don't know why I was so hung up. I, my, most of my notes are like, another dead dog. It's like a dead dog count of this <laughs> know, film. There is, is, there is a, lot of, a lot of dead animals. All my notes are about Except Anton Chigurh's ass. Heaps of alive cats. A lot of alive cats. They look nice too. Then we, we have that amazing... <laughs> so I, don't know, I don't know what that was. <laughs> I genuinely don't know what I just said. Um, <laughs> so Brolin shoots the dog and then he uh, the scene ends. And then we immediately cut to the, the incredible gas station scene, the Oscar, like that's the clip that they played at the Oscars, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. How much have you ever lost on a coin toss? Obviously, that scene's really, really good. Mm -hmm. I don't really think we need to kind of talk about it at all. Just one of the great scenes. Yeah. It's wonderfully acted. That guy is a huge guy. Would yeah. love to cover him one Absolutely. day. I looked him up. I couldn't find as many things as I'd hoped, but I'm sure he would be. A, he's just, that 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 performance is all, you know, everyone talks about Javier, which is of course incredible, but the guy playing the attendant is yeah. so good. And it's also very, very sweetly, Javier Bardem, it's all he talks about when anyone asks about the scene. It's like, I didn't really do anything. All I did was say my lines. Yeah. And then this guy does all the acting. Like, which is, yeah. yeah. I love the weird the weird cough he does in the middle of that scene when the guy's like, I inherited it from my father. And he just goes, <laughs> and I'm like, I can't tell how much of that is like him having an opinion on inheriting the thing or he just chokes on a peanut. 
Yeah, yeah what, marrying, what do we think? Marrying so, into it. Yeah, what what is? I mean, it's something that I want to get into. What the fuck is Anton Chigurh's deal? <laughs> no, no, no. Like, what is his philosophy around that? Like, so, is he eating? I think he's eating peanut brittle. Yeah. Obviously, the coin toss thing is something that oh, you're going to hate. This. Mm. It's actually very anime, <laughs> but. Having a character have to, like I'm gonna. who leaves things to chance because they have little to no kind of um, understanding of like what's right, what's wrong, what's like going to guide them. That is a thing that happens a lot in anime. It even happens in Demon Slayer. It happens in Battle Royale. Mm-hmm. happens in a lot of things where people kind of click yep. going and it's like obviously the idea of toying with someone, but his whole thing is that he, and it comes up again, obviously in his final scene with Kelly McDonald's character mm-hmm. yeah. where he's like, it's up to chance. He's like, the coin got me here. Like it kind of takes away any kind of idea of him having any choice in anything, which yeah. is, is I think marrying into or finding yourself in this way. Like, I don't know. Well, yeah. It's like, like the coin stuff. I'm like, Oh, I kind of understand yeah. that as like, you know, that's uh, fate is determined all, all of that stuff. But then being like, hang on, you married into this petrol station. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know where that comes from. The the analysis I watched said that Anton Chigurh is meant to represent an eschewing of the rules of man to only be the rules of nature and power. So this idea of inheriting things through family is somehow disdainful to him because he's mm. someone that pushes away all like interpersonal relationship. Once again, not taking credit for that. That was someone else's Yeah, I, I kind of... Got that he has no relationships like that and no kind of so it's like you back and then you gave up your other life to come here because your wife like you know it's kind of like you yeah but like also the opposite of what he does I think maybe he had just I also think maybe Javier about them got a little bit of peanut brittle stuck <laughs> in his throat and it's just really good yeah no but the, the lines he he seems to have a disdain for that he he, he gets fixated on it. So Brolin then goes back to the trailer park. Uh, he tells Kelly to pack her things to go see her mum in Odessa. Her mum, played by Beth Grant. Mm-hmm. Um, Javier then meets with assumedly some gangsters. He looks over the scene of the crime and he's given a transponder to track the suitcase that Brolin has now in his home. I love that tra- transponder. It's so small and dinky. The and design rules. It's so funny. Yeah. So old. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I don't it's set know. in the eighties, right? Yeah, yeah, it's set in the it's set in nineteen eighty flat. All it can do is beep louder when you get closer to yeah. stuff. I don't think there's ever been a machine that is. I, what use is that to anyone in any situation when you're trying to track something across a country? Um. Well, it works. It <laughs> does. One, it which works. Is- Two, I think, like, yeah, I, I mean, maybe it's contrived. It is. It, there look, was certainly, like, in the movie White Heat, I think. It was mm-hmm. kind of the first, I think, I think. don't quote me on this, I think it's the first movie to use, like, police tracking technology. And the way they do it then, it's like the 40s, is have, um, like, tri- they're basically triangulating with transponders. And I think it's, like, kind of using that sort of kind of logic of, like, oh, it's this kind of, like, old technology it's not very advanced but it like it still does the job sort of thing like a metal look, detector vibe i guess yeah, but, no, but, yeah. just an old guy on a beach looking for people to kill uh, but i think <laughs> um, in, in this scenario i guess the logic is that if somebody were to come and take the money and interrupt this drug transaction um it's because they'd be in the know so it's like you wouldn't be hard that you would kind of have a feeling that it'd be someone who knew about the situation like it's kind of a bit of a random thing that joff brolin's character happened upon it i also you, guess you assume that it, it was someone double crossed them and did that so you'd know and they also gave out multiple as we find out later so there's lots of people yeah. looking for it. It's probably more useful to 
for finding it in a room than it is to find in a country. Mm. Like it just, it just go beep. It's not like left or right. It's just like, anyway, I was thinking- It's it's a Marco Polo machine. no fucking sense. No, it makes sense. (laughs) Um, Then we cut to Tommy Lee. Great for tension though. Um, It took us so long to see Tommy uh, Tommy Lee Jones, the third lead of this movie, 28 minutes to see the man. Absolutely. He's at his ranch. He takes his wife's horse and that's really cute for some reason. I thought that was really beautiful. Their relationship is great. They have two scenes. And we kind of set up the rhythm of this movie here in this scene. So we cut between Brolin on the run, running away from Javier Bardem, and then behind them, Tommy Lee Jones, who is always one step behind. Um, what do you guys think of that kind of device? It's a, it's a very weird structural choice for the movie. Often we get repeats of scenes. Like we watch the character do something and then we watch another character do it. And then we watch the third character come and see the result of those two actions. I, I like it. I, I mean, think, it's sick. I think it's sick. Um, it's very important that he starts the narration. There's a yeah. There's a thing that I'll get to at the end when once we've fully talked about it that frames that choice in a very interesting way. I don't know if I agree with, but I think it is quite important that weirdly this is his point of view on the movie. Yeah, like well, he narrates the book. Like exactly. in, in the book, it's all and like, well, and every chapter starts with a different story that's just randomly about the good and the evil of man. And the argument is that like. Having Tommy Lee Jones behind these characters is interesting because Josh Brolin doesn't really have an arc. And Shigur certainly doesn't change at all. Tommy Lee is the guy that is changed by the, this story happening around him. Like he mm. has all these things affect him, which sort of reframes his point of view on justice and humanity and God. So I think having him be so far away from the story is helpful mm. for that journey. But yeah. God, he's a good detective. He figures it out very quickly. And he's oh, he's so tired in this movie. Yeah. It's so good. He is the sleepiest guy. All he wants to do is just stop and <laughs> like yeah. sit down. It's so, there's all these scenes of just him with a newspaper and a little coffee. And he's like, I don't know. Like, yeah, every okay. single scene is like, it's probably this. But I, I like that he's completely correct about everything. Yeah, but he's always, he's, right. he's yeah. always <laughs> too far behind and too limited by you know, resources and being tired on the job and just not being able to help. Like, you yeah. know, just, and like literally is completely limited. Yeah, he, can, he, can only, he can only pick up the pieces because there is no way to predict, predict what these two fucking crazy people yeah, are going to do. Chaos engines. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. he finds, uh, first thing, first clue, <laughs> um, he finds the car on fire. Um, it's the car that Javier Bardem, sorry, I should say Anton Sugar. I've, I often just say like JB or something mm. in my notes. And then it's, uh, I don't Which want to- Which could be either Josh Brolin or Javier Bardem. Yeah, it's Bardem. actually a good point. <laughs> Um, Javier uh, recognises Brolin's truck, um, looks over the crime scene for a third time. We then see Javier, um, Anton Chigurh, arrive at Josh Brolin's trailer. It's empty. He sees that they've left in a hurry. He finds telephone records, which seems very uh, lucky. He drinks some milk and then looks in the TV, which we will get to. Those are telephone bills. Because on your, when you, when you, at that time when you had- um, Sorry, no, 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 I I understand that. you You get the record of everything every call that you've yeah, made yeah, so yeah. that you can track it. Um, check the but charging. But it seems it's lucky that he they arrived will. on the day that the post was coming. And like, because they- That's true. Bro- Josh Brolin and, and Kelly McDonald left in a hurry. Mm. And then like the postman came by pretty much immediately after. <laughs> it was mean, like, just it- telephone records. Hope no one sees these that aren't the people that need them. I think it was all such a hurry, though. It's realistic that you wouldn't have. They could have left in there for a couple of days. For sure. For right. Sure. That also makes. Oh, sense it's not. To me. It's uh, yeah. I'm uh, not. I'm not. Hole, I'm not cinema sinsing. It's uh, no transponder <laughs> level plot hole. But um, I am we... just going to bounce back to um, Tommy Lee Jones' scene, looking at the crime scene. Yeah, I, the too. most 
buckwild fact I found about this whole movie is there is a reference in this scene where Tommy Lee Jones talks about a judge that was murdered. Because of the timing and the way Cormac McCarthy writes using sort of real references inside these fantasies, it is quite likelihood that that was the murder of Judge Holland Wood, who was assassinated by Charles Harrelson. Woody, Woody Harrelson's, Harrelson's dad. dad. Yes, I, a, I saw this. Woody Harrelson's dad, famous hitman. A hitman who murdered a someone mentioned in this movie. It is so fucking weird. That I, is crazy. It's that so such crazy. A cool also, I just Woody Harrelson is one of the most fascinating men in Hollywood, and I know three things about him. I know that he likes smoking weed and that his dad was a hitman and, maybe and that he's, he's in movies. And maybe he's a little bit anti-vax. He's an anti-vaxxer, like a huge anti-vaxxer. Oh, well. Now you have four things about Woody Harrelson. <laughs> um, also, I think we need to talk about, because this is a scene, forgive me if I'm wrong, that has Garrett Dillahunt as his like offsider. Yeah, we're um, getting, yeah, we're, we're, we're seeing, it's our first time seeing Hunt. And um, honestly- The hunt is over. The hunt, the hunt is over for Dillahunt. Honestly- Well, the hunt is on. Gives- such a great performance. Wonderful. Makes me laugh out loud a couple of times. He's also funny. Like, you know, he's kind of like, so good. Whoa, this thing. He auditioned five times to play the Llewellyn Moss role. And then as like, and he really, really wanted it. And I think, I think the Coens did actually, they were like very close to casting yeah, him. It was him. And then they were like, nah, Brolin's free. Yeah. Well, no, because Brolin sent in the, you've got this yeah, as well. Another, another famous story uh, of uh, Josh Brolin had Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino direct his audition tape for this movie. Yeah. And then the Coen brothers got it. And then the thing, only thing they sent back was, who lit that? <laughs> shame for Garrett. Yeah, shame for Garrett. But he's great in this movie. And I'm not super, super familiar with Garrett Dillahunt's work, but watching him in this role, I'm like, oh, there's no way you could play Llewellyn Moss. But I'm sure that's just his um, acting. No, or I think he's just a really good actor because yeah. it's like he's playing this sort of like bumbling young buck. And it's like, it's quite, he made a brilliant impression on me. Mm. And then when I did research after, I was like, oh, yeah, he's a good actor. And it sucks so that one might could never see him as this probably because he just did such a good job yeah, acting. He's good. Yeah, because uh, And now I'm like, maybe he's one of those actors who people would put in a box because he did a good job playing a character. You know, like yeah. it's, he's, know. he's in a TV series called Life, which I absolutely loved with Damien Lewis, I think. That's oh, a yeah. redheaded boy. Damien Lewis is a redheaded yeah, boy. Yeah. That's right. Uh, he plays the big bad in that. Like he plays the main villain. And he's- Villain in- Hunt. <sighs> Garrett Villain Hunt. Very good. Hey. Hey. Garrett Villain Hunt. What? Garrett? Oh. Villain Hunt. Who? It's kind of close to his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's incredible in that. Like, he plays a <laughs> on Sorry, I could just watch Charlie being like, cutting that out, cutting that out, cutting that out. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Great guy. Love him. Javier, after drinking, uh, opening the milk, but not drinking it, it seems. <laughs> it's, yeah. I don't know why that's important, but it is. Javier then talks to the trailer park manager who doesn't want to give out any info on the Another great loss. performance. A great Great performance there. Are, uh, yeah, it's the trailer park managers, uh, retail shop assistants, everyone in this movie is so- Anyone who drives on the side of the road who comes in with a chicken oh, coop on the back, God anyone who damn. has- So good. Then we see Josh Brolin sending Kelly McDonald off on a bus to Odessa. So then we see the sheriffs, we see Tommy and Garrett arrive at Brolin's trailer to find they're already too late and Javier beats them there. Tommy Lee Jones, great choice, sees the milk has been opened by Javier and is like, oh, it's still sweating, like we've just missed him and then sits down and begins to drink that milk, which is just a really great choice. And Garrett goes like, we just missed him. Yeah. Like that bit where he's like, oh. Um, he's <laughs> like, I'm devastated. Like a couple of beats late. Yeah, we should put out an ABV. And he goes like, on what? Someone who's just drank milk? And then Tommy Lee Jones sees himself in the TV. In the It's the same framing as we've just seen Anton Chigurh do. Listening to this Deacons interview, discovered on the day. They thought they were going to do the TV shot for Chigurh, but they didn't think they were going to repeat it with Tommy, which is so interesting Sick. because 
because it's like one of the key images of the movie thematically of like, oh, there's these like two kind of mirror guys that are like one's traveling out and one's traveling in. It's like the whole movie in two shots. I'm also surprised that, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised that there is new stuff that's found on the day, but like this movie is storyboarded to hell. Like every shot is in the storyboard. You look at at some of the clips of it. A fun little fact. So this was shot on film and it was on 250,000 feet of film Yeah, when your standard film would be on 700,000. So this film was like tight. It was filmed really precisely. There weren't like a lot of wasted takes. So to be able to just drop in and get a shot like that on a day really does speak to kind of how good everyone in this movie is. Brolin finds his way to a motel. Is this the Del Rio? I think this is the Del Rio motel. He checks the bullet wound on his shoulder and then he hides the briefcase of money in the motel's vent. There is so much in this movie, we'll get more into it later, of process. Like just- building shit, watching hands do stuff, watching a guy that knows what he's doing. It's like, it's kind of like some of the best kind of movie making you can do is just like, watch a guy build something or like watch a guy make a phone call. Like, like yeah. you know, just process is Why just my so, so good. Javier Bardem uh, then uses the, sorry, Anton Chigurh uses the, it just feels weird to call him Javier Bardem in this movie. Like I've never yeah, had a problem Josh, with it before. Josh it's like Josh Brolin, fine, TLJ, fine. Something about calling Javier Bardem, Javier Bardem, when the stuff he's doing in this movie is a little <laughs> twisted. <laughs> feels yeah. rude. Uh, it feels rude. Anton Chigurh uses the phone records to make a call to Kelly McDonald's mother. And he is on the phone to Beth Grant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, he be coming out here. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Immediately is like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. It's great. Uh, absolutely. I think, isn't she shouting from a different room in that yeah. sequence? Which yes. is so good. I think it's just, I got the big C. In oh, the that's later. That's, that's later. later. Oh, that's car. later? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she doesn't say that to oh, Anton no. Sugar. <laughs> I've got the big C, Sugar. <laughs> Man, you're probably right. Um, she's just confused as to why. She, and it just like sets up that she obviously hates hates her son-in-law yeah. so with good. a burning passion. So good. Brolin then goes to buy new shoes. Uh, we see we see our first retail assistant who is really, really nice to him. And then nice to him again later. As Brolin makes his way back to the motel, there's a truck already there. Spooked, Brolin gets the taxi and takes him to another motel for the night. Tommy Lee Jones, oh, Tommy Lee Jones and Garrett Dillahunt, this is the diner scene. There's a couple of them, but one of them where like Garrett Dillahunt's like, and what are we going to do next? Like, uh, like we got to go out and get, and then Tommy Lee Jones like opens a newspaper and is like, you seen all these deaths lately? <laughs> it's so good. That story he tells about the uh, couple that are kidnapping old people and torturing them yes. is so like not a part, well, it's obviously a part of this movie, but I remember that being like, I think throughout the entire movie, maybe the most horrific part for me, like mm. among all the violence, is just something about like Tommy Lee Jones' exhaustion at the incidental evil of this world. Mm-hmm. It's like it hit me harder than like any of Anton's murders, weirdly. Oh, 100%. And, yeah, I do, they and do. It, it goes to what you were saying like his arc in this movie is not a classic character arc of like he learns something and then is able to persevere through a, you know, great difficulty. No. His, his character arc is he gets more and more tired and then just decides to stop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is like it, it, it would get into it like, this movie is this movie's view of the world I find incredibly depressing it's super existential and depressing yeah and, and like yeah. nihilistic and sad and yeah. like there is uh, there is no point the only point of being good is just for the sake of being good. There yeah. is no other reason to do it. It is very like, you know, it's, you know, um, Camus sort of like shit. It's yeah. like, you know, anyway. I don't, yeah, I don't know. That's something we'll get to later. I don't know how pessimistic this movie is versus 
nihilistic. It is easy to say that I think this movie is grim and has a bad view of the world, but I don't know how bad a view it has of people because everyone who isn't Javier in this movie is kind of a good person. All the shop, well, maybe not the big business characters, Mm. but it's like all the shopkeepers, Tommy, Josh goes back for the water. I think everyone is good. And it's just like, it is that thing of you're fighting against impossible odds at all times and you may not win. Brolin um, then makes a sawn off shotgun uh, and buys tent poles at the camping store. Do you know why he makes the shotgun sawn off? Is it so uh, so it's easy to carry, I guess? He gets another room at the motel, the room behind the room that he initially got. Um, The idea being that he's going to steal the briefcase from the vents of the room he initially put it in. I don't get the logic of why he does that. He's got a full plan to take the briefcase out. Why does he need to do that apart from the fact that Javier Bardem is there and hunting him? He has that, ta- he has that scene in the taxi where he uh, asks to be driven through the front of the parking lot. And I yeah. think he sees another car and thinks it's Bardem or someone. Yeah, so he's, right. he thinks he's already made. So he goes back to go check into a different room. To get it out, to leave. Yeah. So he doesn't go back to his hotel room, which he thinks he's been caught. His Great. plan okay. and because he's, And because he's hidden it, that was the point of putting it there so he could access point yeah. from another hotel room if he had to. Or like, it, so it was hidden initially, but it was like there could be. And he had to come, he kind of had to improv the tent peg plan to get it back without yeah. going back into the room. Yeah, I believe that makes is sense. how that works. There's a great scene where he buys tent poles and he says, can I just buy the tent poles? And the guy's like, I'll have to order them in special. And he's like, all right, can I just have a tent? Which tent do you want? The one with the most poles. Yeah, it's good. Really good, good stuff. Good. Then we see Javier drive, sorry, Anton driving around <laughs> and he's driving around in the transponder. Beep beeps. Uh-oh. Uh, he's on the case, is what I wrote. What was he doing? What he's was driving he, around. What was he doing he's up driving to this around. point? He's just driving around yeah. the entirety of Texas. He's a state. He doesn't have anything else on. <laughs> <laughs> he's not going to be late for dinner. And he can just drive around. I, know- I think there's probably a moment. I know that he's looking at like the telephone log history, stuff like that. I think that there's like some, I, I couldn't think, it might have been some connection with Del Rio. I know that they've, they've gone somewhere else because she's gone to- But also I think but. I think there's there's also a thing of Josh Brolin at the beginning of the movie goes through this whole process of like tracking where these people are. And then Anton Chigurh is so good at predicting exactly what Brolin's going to do through the same, th- like you see him in this scene, mm-hmm. look up at the vent. And there's this thing, I think tracking inside of him, which is like, that's what I'd do. And I think that's that's like the that's part of the kind of mirroring between them, the the coin, the the flip of the coin, if you will, um, of like they're, they're sorry, they're both I'm super, really really sorry. They're both super competent, and yeah, they're both and super competent. Similar. And there's a thing of like there's just this thing that uh, Anton Chigurh does, which is just to be like, well, that's what I do. That's probably the, the decision that he would make. I think he guessed. He, he is guessing, but he's like driving to different motels. I think, he's it's, like, I think it's the same can, thing as being. Only, you stay, you have to he, stay so somewhere. he knows where he lives, right? So he's like, that if you're going to go, he's probably like imagining where you would, yeah, your escape route would be, and you have to sleep at some point. So you yeah. drive down like a highway, which is what I think makes sense to me. Yeah. Actually, yeah. makes sense to me. I, I, it makes some sense to me. I think it is. Look, the movie's about fate and direction and all that stuff. And within the logic of the movie and the mythology of the movie, I'm fine with it. Within the reality of the world, I think it's kooky. Your as well. struggle with this transponder. The transponder he drives around it. until it beeps. It beeps, and then he's like, "I found, <laughs> found it. it." Like the logic of that is so clean. He drives around different motels. 
and then he waits for the transponder to beep. And there's probably Again. like one road that leads out of town that has motels on it. You know okay. what I mean? Like, like what else is he doing? <laughs> you're right. You're you right. He's not, he's not busy. I'll he's give him that. He's not busy. He doesn't have a tennis game to go to. <laughs> oh, you don't know that. Brolin is opening up the vent using the tent poles to grab the briefcase from the other side of the vent. This scene is just so well shot, but mm. like so simply shot. Not a lot of coverage at all. Just like the use of sound I will get into later, but the, you hear the gas bottle turn on, the lock flying against the wall. Javier goes into Brolin's room. There are some gangsters in there, presumably who were, presumably who were there to kill Brolin, have like broken mm. into his room. And then one of them's like having a shower. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't kind of- He was tr- hiding in the shower. He was the wearing shower. clothes. He wasn't having a shower, he was hiding. <laughs> Uh, it just seems like, <laughs> I don't know. So there was a lot of transport. So someone else also found him with a transponder. Yes. Yeah. So this, this thing actually worked really uh, well. It's, the, be- it's <laughs> the best piece of technology in the world. Transponders are so good. One of, one of the things I saw pointed out is the way that he goes, the reason he goes through the first room, it's not just looking for the case. No, it's also learning the exact layout of the room. He checks the layout of the room by getting into another motel room. That's so, that's such good, it's that's such good process so stuff. He good. checks the um, width of the wall. Yeah, to be like, yeah, yeah. Can I shoot my shotgun through this? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he can. He does. Uh, it, it, it boy, is such, does he. It's such good like sh- reverse Sherlock, uh, Sherlock Holmesing where it's yeah. like, what if instead of in Sherlock where he explains it all at the end, you get to see the process of this genius work it out? Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking such a sick um, scene. And then the alarm bells ring because it is now Woody time. We see Woody Harrelson having a meeting with Stephen Root. Yes! We gotta, we gotta, we gotta get Rudy for, nope. We, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta get, do Stephen Root. Get, get to the root we of gotta the get problem. The, yeah, we gotta get to the root of the problem. There we go. Stephen Root is some high up businessman who clearly has ties in with mm. the cartel and Woody gives Woody the task of hunting down Anton Chigurh. Brolin goes to another hotel. This is a stunning set. It's both a set and a real location. Mm. And he asks the hotel manager to call him if anyone else checks in. Brolin finally checks the briefcase for the tracker, finds it, but hears a disturbance outside. Mm. Chigurh has found him. This is probably one of the best sequences ever. Like this, Brolin slowly preparing. There's um, the, the hallway. The, the, like you can just see the light, like slash of light through the hallway. Mm. The sound design in this sequence is because mostly you're looking at a door. Mm. You're like Brolin's face, door, Brolin's face, door. And you get the entire story from the sound design, the twist of the gas bottle, the light being screwed off so that the light goes out, the like slow steps that, and like it starts with, you just hear something, you don't know what it is. And then Brolin immediately like, and you're already set up to be like, fuck, what, like, what is going to happen? And as soon as you hear that noise, both you and Brolin do the logic of, fuck, I'm already too late. I've already fucked this up. Yeah. Shoot he, the gun. Yeah. Shoot at the door. Yeah, you should have shot him through the door. But he did. Brolin would <laughs> but Brolin, as soon as you see the like the shadow, yeah. but Brolin won't do that because he's, he's not like, Shigur. He's like, yeah. what if it's a someone else? like yeah, he doesn't. Yeah, yeah, what yeah, if it's yeah, room yeah. service? So <laughs> the sound designer <laughs> of this movie, his name is Craig Berkey. He's got an incredible career. He talks about uh creating the gun, the the like silencer gun. Uh, shotgun Noise. which is like not a real invented. not a, completely invented uh, Skip was listening to some pr- production tracks he came across a playback take of the TV show that is playing in one of the scenes at the beginning of the take before the program material started with these strange thwomp pop type sounds so he took those affected them added some several elements added it t- to the bass sound so the 
gun going off is actually the like of a TV turning turning off. Sound designers are so cool. And that's just, and then added in uh, a reversed female scream and a pitched up servo. Jesus Christ. Uh, I love folly folly design. Folly artists are some of the coolest jobs So let me give you Craig Berkey. The French, this is a a very small snippet of his career. Uh, The French Dispatch, Roma, um, X-Men First Class, Ice Age, The Tree of Life, Transformers. Transformers is a wonderfully sound designed film. Uh, it's so good that the sound is, of the Transformers is just completely insane. Arguably the best part of those movies is how the Transformers sound when they kind of, inarguably actually, those movies are pretty bad. <laughs> they sound <laughs> <What>? great. <laughs> this is the first they time I'm hearing of Fantastic. My three favorite films. I would love to Transformers, do- Revenge of the Fallen. Matrix Resurrections, <laughs> <laughs> and then Transformers Day of the Beasts or whatever the new one is. So, and he talks about this kind of moment and talking about these moments when they use silence. We talked before, there's no, there's like six music cues total um, in this in this movie, including like the opening and closing. So he talks about kind of the silence. There are many spots in the film like that. When Chigurh is approaching Moss's hotel room in Del Rio, we underplayed everything. Backgrounds, footsteps to help create t- tension. We all know a loud startling confrontation is imminent, but are still shocked by it. My favorite spot is the at the Eagle Hotel when Chigur is approaching Moss from down the hall. There are sev- several things that happen off screen early in the sequence that force you to focus on the sol- smallest of sounds. A silenced gunshot with a chair scrape, an unanswered phone ring, a strange sound like putting your ear up to a seashell from under the door. These all lead up to Chigur's footsteps and floor creaks and the receiver beeping as he approaches Moss's room. Again, we know what is going to happen, but are still alarmed by it when it does. An incredible sequence, lit incredibly, sound design incredible, Acted shot incredible. Josh Brolin is so good in it; he's fucking terrified. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a great. scary scene. The scenes with Chagall in particular, like it's it's straight up horror. Yeah. Like it's fucking horrifying. Yeah, he is a, he is terrifying. he is a ghost. Like when, yeah. when people talk, when people in this movie talk about what genre it is, horror is almost always mentioned. Yeah. yeah. I think is interesting. Absolutely, though. That this sequence is a horror. Like that, that could be Michael Myers on the other side of the fucking door. I, that was that was the other th- the thing. The thing. The other, uh, as well as Matrix Resurrections, I kept thinking about Halloween. Yeah, I kept thinking about Michael Myers. It is that kind of unstoppable force of evil. Absolutely. Yeah, um, that's yeah. the one that most, shoot him, he's most gonna agree get with. He's gonna um, get up. Then bang, Chigurh fires the bolt through the door. Brolin fires. Brolin jumps out of the hotel window, and then I've just written, "God damn!" <laughs> I was having a good time. It's- he's running. He gets shot in the side. Anton Chigurh fires down from a window. Brolin gets in a car, asks the driver to drive, but the driver immediately gets shot. That little moment where he like gets in the car and is like, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. And the guy's like, what's going on? And he's out. And it takes you a while to realize whether he's shooting from the front or the back. Yeah. Like it takes until you notice that the windshield, which way the windshield broke. It's so well done. And it keeps you in the mind space of being confused while still giving you enough information to figure it out. There's a bit where, um, and I was just like, why did he go back into the foyer? Yeah, it is. It is interesting. I think he's like maybe I'm going to like fight him again. Oh or no! Something. I think it's just that it was the closest thing that's not directly exposed, and he was like, yeah. "I bet he won't expect me to do this." Like that's right. the thing that I because he, he drops great shot, down and he goes straight back into the only place that isn't directly in view of the window, yeah. which is back into the building. Back in the building, and then he see. sees you see the spilt milk again and the cat licking it, and yeah. you're like, "Oh, the guy's dead." Like yeah. the uh, manager is the no, hotel he's not manager. Dead. The cat. The cat's like, fine. Seriously. Cat's very happy. Cat's and Anton seriously. likes cats. It makes sense. It makes sense that Anton likes cats. I I Real really, psychopaths like cats. By the cats. end, I was like, is there every, something? Every, everyone else in this room. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really uh, really pitching to the right audience um, in this room. 
we get this repeated motif of the blood trail and you get that like Brolin is now the deer the, the deer that he was hunting at the beginning of the movie now he is the hunted he uh, gets back in the car uh, uh, floors it and then crashes immediately which I always think is funny <laughs> it's always a good bit to get in a car and crash it immediately and there's a little gunfight between Brolin and Brolin hits uh, Brolin and Anton Chigurh and uh, hits Anton Chigurh in the leg but by the time he kind of comes to hit Chugo's already disappeared. This was one of the most tense action scenes I've ever watched in a very long time because one of the few things I remembered about this movie is that Brolin dies. Mm. I mm. Feel, like I remembered that he dies and it's extremely weird and it's too early and I couldn't I didn't remember that it happens off screen but this entire sequence was like is this when he dies? Yeah, yeah, Is yeah, this yeah. the bit because I knew that this is everyone even before I saw No Country it was always told to me as like oh it's a movie where the main character dies it's yeah. so a structure cool. <laughs> which it is and all of that's true but people who tell me that are annoying. Well, I enjoy that's us now. Yeah. I enjoy films where sound, I know okay it makes you sound like a psychopath. But I enjoy films that where there's like repercussions for action sequences. So like if you get 100%. shot by a gun, mm-hmm. you're going to have to deal with that. You can't just be like she'll be right like and we have both of these characters dealing with some pretty serious oh. injuries throughout the film. And I think it's uh, I I kind of like that. Although it's not yeah. probably entirely realistic. He pulls shrapnel out of his legs later. We'll talk that I um I I like that they do actually deal with their injuries. Yeah, the violence is consequence in yeah. this movie. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. The violence is fascinating in this movie. Mm. So well directed, so it's so easy to watch, and so tense, and so beautiful. And then the movie is like, "Do you really want to watch this?" Yeah, <laughs> the bit I think about we've already passed, but it's where he shoots the guy in the hotel room, and the guy's arm just bounces off like yeah. a fucking. It's it's like hanging there like a yo-yo. It's crazy. It's one of the most <sighs> gruesome effects of a gunshot. It is the most gruesome effect of a gunshot I've ever seen in a movie. And There's that one in The Jackal where uh, I think he fires it at Jack Black or Jack Black fires it and he gets like a bunch of holes straight through his stomach and he can see through. I've always thought about it. No, he gets a big hole in, in the middle mm. of his tummy. Um, uh, it was also at the start of the film where he chokes him with his handcuffs as the blood from his wrists, yeah. um, which I find like is a kind of interesting, you know, like I feel like a lot of other movies that have that happen. There is like a consequence, but this character doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, and yeah. The just just like absentmindedly is cleaning off. Yeah, like well, he always blood. cleans it. That's, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah, he doesn't, yeah, like, he doesn't like getting blood on him. <laughs> yeah. um, Brolin then walks to the Mexican border. He's really beat up. He finds some drunk twenty somethings walking down the highway. Gives them five hundred for a coat and a beer. It is a Coen Brothersy scene because mm-hmm. these teens are just assholes <laughs> like to him, and it's a funny scene. They're not assholes initially. They're like, "Are you all right?" Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. not until and this is a big thing with this movie. It's not until Brolin offers them money that they become assholes. Yeah. There's a big thing about greed in this movie. They're like, "Are you all right, dude? Were you in a car accident?" And then he's like, "I'll give you a hundred dollars for." that jacket and they're immediately like oh now we have something to gain and then he's like give me that beer it's actually i had i didn't even put this together and then he says um he's like and can i have the beer as well and the guy's like how much for the beer and it's a repeat well it's it's the first time but and then at the end of Mm -hmm. the movie the two kids say how much for the shirt like it's the same yeah and it's it's the same thing of like the straight the random people in this movie are actually really nice until the money gets involved yeah um, Brolin chucks the briefcase off the highway into some bushes. He passes the border and falls asleep. Uh, he wakes up uh, to a band that is playing music at him. Really, really good. They're that's, also, a cover, that's a cover. That's a cover. Yeah, absolutely. And they're not facing anyone else. They are. <laughs> there's like eight of them, and they're all standing above Brolin <laughs> playing and singing. And they're like, because he's at like a patio 
thing. Then, you, is that like a edge of a fountain? Or a gazebo? Yeah, I think yeah, it's a yeah. gazebo. And traditionally, the band would be at the top of the gazebo. Uh, but traditionally, next the, to it. Traditionally, the band also wouldn't be playing at dawn in the middle <laughs> of the street. <laughs> Roland wakes up and he's like, take me to a doctor, take me to a doctor. And then there's that beautiful shot of him handing over the dollar. Yeah. Also the song- it's, Yeah, a hundred dollar bill. Yeah. It's more than a dollar. <laughs> Here's a buck. The lyrics that these guys are singing, of oh, course, great. are about the movie. It's like, you flew too close to the sun and now you're in trouble. You want the money but now you have nothing like it is yeah. uh, it is bang on just what the movie is going also on. like if you speak spanish you might be like a little on the nose Almost <laughs> um and I, the the thing i thought about in that sequence was like man breaking bad took a lot of shit from this movie yeah, well i oh, mean it is so much it's, yeah this movie is so influential yeah. on every single uh, western of, any, yeah. anything filmed like after in this era. <laughs> yeah, in, yeah yeah then we cut to javier he's injured in the leg his his choices <laughs> So he, he's like, uh, I, I need to steal some pharmaceuticals. Great. That's your, that's, so good. I love it. that's I your, love it. that's your goal. Like that's yeah. your mission. His decision is what I'm going to do is blow up a car. <laughs> and so he lights a um, thing on fire, basically Molotov cocktails a car and then walks into the pharmacy while everyone's freaking out. Hey, it works. So, you know, th- th- you can't argue with the results. Seems like that could have gone very badly. <laughs> like, it seems like for someone that's so precise all the time, seems like a wild choice. It does seem like that is the time that he's most like, this will do. Also, Mike Soz Pharmacy, real place from Cohen t- uh, the Cohen Brothers' hometown, and also the name of their production company, like Mike Soz Productions. I think it is. Yeah, right. Yeah, there you go. So we see Javier uh, Anton in a motel room. He's iodining his leg, and he injects himself so he can put, pick the bullets out. This is another moment of like process like you just see the very slow process of him injecting his leg picking it out with using a mirror so just quickly back to the carb molotov cocktail bit i don't mind that because yeah it's sloppy for him but it's like he's at his end of his tether this sort of makes sense he's yeah, like sure. fucking pissed off this doesn't happen to this character he doesn't get shot by someone who gets away with the money like he yeah. the first time we've ever seen him actually challenged in the whole film yeah and he's walking around with blood pooling in his boot on that bit where he like pull uh, pours the blood out of his shoe, I've got something from the costume designer where she was like, we wanted his uh, boot to look like a weapon, like something that he could kill someone with. Jesus. Yeah. And you look at those, she was like, well, you want this tall slanted heel and we made it out of like alligator skin. Sick. It's fucking sick. And I, really yeah, cool. I, I just love that of being like, yeah, he could kill someone with it any item that he has. Yeah, he's got the, like, you see this pen, I can kill you with this pen sort yeah, of yeah, energy. Yeah. And there's the thing also with him is, like, all of his items come from nowhere. He's got, like, this gun that doesn't make any sense. He's got, he's like, got video this... game character logic. Well, he's kind of always got the perfect tool for the job. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah, is yeah. kind of Bucks Bunny-ish where he's <laughs> like, oh, what do I need for this scene? Like, the stuff that he jams into the car when he blows it up as well. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. It's, yeah, like, all yeah. so precise and specific items. Well, he's got, like, it's, he strips the T-shirt. He's yeah, wearing, yeah, He's yeah. wearing a shirt and he strips that and then he's really good at stripping that shirt. He's good at stripping. He's good at everything. Now we see Woody Harrelson catching up with uh, Brolin in hospital. He brings him flowers, which is just a really good choice. He's Mm -hmm. got this kind of like beautiful bouquet. Woody warns Brolin that Chigurh is going to kill his wife, basically. And he's like, there is no way to stop him now that he he doesn't think about uh, this sort of like me, you can pay off. Like if it was me, Mm. you give me half the money or whatever, most of the money, we all leave and everything's fine. It's not how he works. Sorry you either need to like go and like give him the money or give it know, to me, give it to me and I'll sort it out. He says he's got a strange sense of fairness or yeah. ethics. Yeah. I think it is. Um, Which then, is brought up later. 
he's like, I gave my word. You're like, this is the, not the right word to keep. <laughs> right? Word. Like, yeah. you're, you're right. It's very anime. We haven't brought up, well, we will, because we'll get to the scene where Tommy Lee Jones talks about when he figures out what the weapon is. But how the bolt gun is like actually a humane way of killing people. It's pretty humane. Like it's how they kill, that's how they try and like, it, it's pain free. People well, don't know what's yeah. going on. I, lo- I looked it, it up. Done. Apparently when you use it on, a, on an animal, it stuns them, which is... Weird, and then you kill them a different way. I think you stun them with that, and then you slit their throats. Oh God, uh, um, uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Veg- uh, sorry, I just, all, I just had to we're move all on. All vegetarians now <laughs> on this podcast. Um, no, but I, um, I do wonder if that's like interesting. Kind of, I guess so. You could argue that he just views everyone as cattle. Yeah, that's he, another way of looking at it. Yeah, because I, I know that. Tommy Lee. Well, actually, when we get to that scene, we'll talk mm. about it. Which is right now. Um, Tommy Lee Jones is talking to <laughs> Kelly McDonald. <laughs> He's in a diner. Um, he, he tells her that, like, Llewellyn is really in danger here. There's some weird thing that's going on. He gives this incredible monologue about the man and the steer. And he's like, there are, there's nothing in life that's certain because like even uh, a man against a cow that's like hanging upside down, he's like, he fires the thing and it like ricochets off and hits him in the arm. And it's yeah. like, there's, there's no level of preparedness or, you know, swiftness and how sure you are that can defend you from um, chance and the chaos of the universe. There's, and there's also this thing of all of these scenes mirror each other so you have like Woody talking to Brolin is the same scene as Tommy Lee Jones talking to Kelly McDonald um, and then you kind of have the same thing later with Anton Chigurh talking to Woody Harrelson Woody then goes looking for the money that's been we sorry. also have with Kelly McDonald in this scene um, because she seems like this character kind of just gets on the bus and leaves is sort of like a bit resigned to her fate but does just kind of just full-on trust Llewellyn and you get that from this scene because she's just like yeah. he will figure it out and, yeah. you know, we have seen nothing but competence from him so far. Just that he's up against, like, an unstoppable evil force. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting to see her kind of be like, you know, she's a bit like, oh, man, I don't want to have to go. Like, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. always just like, he'll figure it out. He always does. Like, and then and then Tommy Lee's like, no. Like, maybe not on maybe this, not not this, this time. time yeah. And yeah. it's kind of, it's, it's interesting. Also, in that uh, uh, Woody... Uh, scene when he comes to the hospital and he talks about welding. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, anything, anything, anything you can weld, that can weld. And he's like, cast iron? Yeah, Woody has like, <laughs> fucking- Woody has like three pop quiz moments in this for no reason where he's like- I, Pop metal? It's, it's, it's like he's trying to, it's like he's doing a job interview because hopefully once he gets his $2 million, he also needs a shed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, he's, te- he's testing him out to be like, in you know, in yeah. a little while. Well, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll call you up. Yeah, was can it you speed? Send- pop quiz? Yeah. <laughs> I've had a lot of speed hot thoughts shot. in this movie. Pop quiz, hot shot. Okay, I just want to ask about Woody Harrelson's character. Mm. Uh-huh. Is he meant to be like the second best assassin? Like, is he meant to be so. like really so. good at his fucking job? I mean, as he says, he's like, I, he's like, he won't find me. He's like, I found you in 30 minutes. Yeah. You're like, I... Give me like, three hours. Give me three. Yeah. Sorry, not thirty minutes. I over exaggerated. How, like, how dare you? <laughs> he's like, give me three hours, and I'm here yeah. with the flowers. And he's like, just a very different vibe. You get yeah. a few clues about him throughout the movie. You find out that he's a former army colonel, and you also have that bit coming up soon where Anton Chigurh goes, "If your morals led you here, what is the point of them? If, if the rule that you followed led you to this, yeah. of what use was the rule?" I think the movie is saying that to a certain degree, he is. You could almost say he's the worst of it because he's like trying to live this assassin lifestyle but does it with morals as if that makes a difference yeah i don't i don't know, i don't know if the, the if the if the movie if there is a reading of the movie that has a hard and fast kind of moralistic kind of take on woody harrelson's character that, that's i true. think it's just like i don't know he seems like a cool guy yeah i think you're probably right <laughs> just a different style you know yeah, like yeah, he yeah. can be bought 
he actually is a business. He treats us as like he's his business. It reminded yeah. me of that, um, the, the incredible end of Michael Clayton when he's like, oh. I'm not the person that you fuck with. I'm the person that you pay off. Like, why would you ever plant a bomb in my car? You idiot. <laughs> like, and like, I think Woody Harrelson is that kind of guy. It's like, I'm just a peddler, man. Like, yeah, give me a better deal, I'll take it. Yeah, not not to spoil Michael Clayton. The point of that scene is he's lying. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that is true. No, 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 no. The point that he's not lying. Anyway, we don't he need gets, to get into Michael Clayton. He, well, we should. No, no, no. The reason he's saying that, like, he's not lying. He's saying absolutely, I would have taken the money. Like, yeah, but you chose but to not give me the money and tried have, to kill me. No, but the point of that scene is he could have, sorry, Michael Clayton's a good movie. Um, he extorts, he's in the process of extorting her. He yeah. didn't need to go to the FBI before doing that. He could have walked away with the money. But it doesn't mean what he's saying is a lie. You think that, but he, I think at that point in the movie, he's changed enough that he's not. Yeah, yeah, but the only reason he changed is because they tried to kill him. <laughs> That's why he changed. You're right, you're right. Yeah. Okay, I see I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, and how does Beth Grant's role in Michael Clayton play into <laughs> oh, this uh, God, I, conundrum? Actually, Beth Grant in Tilda Swinton's role would actually kind of crush it. I mean, part of that is, she, like, part of that character is also same year, 2007. Really? Yeah, same year. Man, fucking 2007. 2007, great year. There Sunshine, be, this, and Michael Clayton. There will and be Sweeney blood. Todd and, and of course, uh, Sweeney, Centrinians. Weenie Todd. Centrinians, good movie. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the big three. The big three in Sweeney Todd, Todd. no country for old men. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, what, what a three bill. Blowing up the Scotland box office. <laughs> Charlie saw all of them 158 times. Yeah, that's right. You you were doing the Barbie Oppenheimer, but St. Trinian's in no country. It's good. It's good mm, shit. Actually, that does sound good. Um, doing a double feature of No Country for Old Men St. Trinian's and St. Trinian's. good. I like St. Trinian's too, dude. I don't know why you're arguing with me. I don't know. I feel like it got a little- Is lo it better I, it's, than No Country for Old Men? Well, how about this? Is it better than Holes? Whew, I have to cover it again. We have to watch it again. We got to watch St. Trinian's. Oh, there's so many- people in Centurions we could do as well. Like yeah. lots of random, actually a lot of famous people in Centurions though. That's the thing is like, it's a lot of they famous people very young. Yeah, yeah. it's a star making movie, yeah. isn't it? Um, anyway, it's a, a real launching pad so for the future stars. <laughs> uh, Michael Clayton and St. Trinians here on our Michael Clayton podcast. Woody finds the money that's been tossed from the bridge, um, walking back to the hotel and then Anton's already found him. Why doesn't Woody pick it up then? That's the crazy thing for me. He looks at it, he smiles and is like, I figured it out. I gotta go home. Yeah, I don't know. I think he's like- As good a hiding place as any. It's, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's so obvious. <laughs> it's so weird. Like it, he, he's like, mm, he's probably walked across the Mexican border. He looks down, he's like, yep, I was right. It's right there. <laughs> good to have confirmed I am right. There is that little My thing. My day he, is done. He like jumps up on the thing and he like does a little sing in the rain moment. Yeah. Where he's like on the light post. It's cute. Just want to use it as leverage in case he runs into um, Chicago though. I think that's the point of that. Yeah. Like well, he wants to be like- why is he leaving I, there? I think if he had it, he just assumed he'd be shot. Yeah, I think he, he could, knows I, he's in hot I also water. think maybe getting it in the middle of the day would be difficult. But then again, you do see Josh Brolin do that in yeah. like a couple of scenes. You could, you could put it literally anywhere. You mm. could put it in the middle. You, you, you could bury it in, I think in the exact enough, same place. I think that this character doesn't want to have the money on his, on his person. I think he wants to get paid. He doesn't want to borrow this money that he knows has multiple parties looking for it, not just the most dangerous man ever. I think he doesn't want to have that money physically because mm. he's been in this game long enough. He's going to get paid a certain rate. 
he's going to get paid from that money. He doesn't want to have it. I think that actually makes yeah, he sense. He calls to himself me. a day trader, which I really like. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm that makes trader. sense to me. However, he's like, he, okay. for, for such a smart fellow, he leaves the money there, walks home, and immediately gets shot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, so I think then, he was yes. gunning on Anton being more injured than. I, I think he lied on his resi and is a bit of a goofball. Because <laughs> he comes in, he he's talks a big game, he's like, I can, ta- I, I can kill Anton Sugar. He finds a suitcase, leaves it where it is, and gets shot in the chest. Yeah, perfect. Perfect day. At this point, I don't mission think, complete. It's like Anton doesn't even really care about the money at this point. He's just hell. I mean, he does, but he's just hell bent on like. Getting, yeah, it's not. It's not about the not money about at the all for money. him. He's, it's yeah. yeah, and he has that. I think it's in this in this monologue um, where so Woody goes into the hotel room. Chigurh's already there. Chigurh loves to surprise someone by sitting in a chair. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you weren't expecting me to be so comfortable. And I love um, it. I love every second of it. And then Woody sits down and they have this conversation and Chigo kind of explains it's like I simply do not care about the money the point of this is I was told to do something and so I'm going to do it and then someone stopped me from doing it and now I'm mad Woody does this an incredible uh, performance from him in this sequence Uh, he's so mad he's going to die and I think that's such a good choice there's no like I don't he's like scared but it's not like Oh my god! I'm so scared! I'm gonna die. He's like, fuck, fuck it's fucking he, shit. It's he, yeah, he's he, off it. He fucked up a bunch. He did a bad job. I like. He he was like, hmm. I will stay in the exact same hotel where Anton Chigurh shot a guy yesterday. Yeah. The last thing I could possibly expect is for him to come and shoot me. And then I write in this movie, like Anton kind of explains a bit of his philosophy, and I was like, I think Anton Chigurh's philosophy is really bad. <laughs> I think he's not very smart or empathetic. I agree. I agree. I think. He, He's also a bit of a dummy. He's just better at it. Brolin calls the hotel, uh, trying to call Woody, ends up talking to Jagger. Brolin tries then to get back into America. Uh, he gets some clothes. The friendly retail guy that sold him shoes earlier, he like walks in and is like, uh, the first question he asks is, how are the shoes going? And Brolin's like wearing a hospital gown and the boots that he yeah, sold. Yeah. He's like, good, they're really good. Now I need everything else. And the retail guy's like, no worries. That's just a really nice scene. We get Brolin calling Beth Grant again, and that's when we hear mm-hmm. her in the other room. And she she goes, I got the big scene. That's right. That is um, where it comes in. I combine those two scenes. Javier then comes and appears in town, murks Stephen Root within seconds, which is always sad. And then there's threatens another guy, has that great line, that depends, do you see me? He's like, uh, are you going to kill me? this poor assistant to Stephen Root. And yeah. then he's like, that depends. Do you see me? And then it cuts out to this wide shot of just the two of them looking at each other. <laughs> I think it's just like, it's kind of a joke. Yeah, like you're going to die. Yeah, but yeah. it's really, really good. Good shit. Then we finally get Beth Grant time. Beth she appears on screen, her hair in a huge little beehive thing. Um, she's driving in the car and then we immediately cut to, we see uh, gangsters behind them driving, cartel members mm-hmm. behind them. Do we, Do we have, have the time, time code? code? Well, I have her entering at 39 minutes and 31 seconds when we first hear her. Yeah, that's the phone call. I have a really unfortunate thing that I'm only realizing looking at my notes. Because she disappears so quickly. I don't have the Beth sit. Oh this my week. goodness. I'm so sorry. That's, I was looking at my notes. That is disgusting. It's embarrassing. I promise I will have the Beth sit for next week. I mean, we should talk about Beth Grant now. Um, it's a wonderful performance. It's wild. It's huge. It's. I think one of the most interesting things for me is that I was looking at her and she's got this wig and she's got this stance and I was like looking at her face and I'm like, because I have seen you so much in this last three weeks, We've been However doing long. this. I'm like, you're not that old. You are not, you don't look this age. Yeah, it's yeah, really yeah, yeah. strange. It's like, 
at the time when I first saw her, I would have been like, yeah, that woman is 65, 70, yeah. playing the mm -hmm. edge she is. And I look at it now, I'm like, Beth, you can't get me. <laughs> I know you. I know your tricks. I've been here before. Yeah. You look great. Don't lie to me. <laughs> Carla Jean calls Tommy Lee Jones, tells him where Josh Brolin is going, which is El Paso, Texas. Then we see Anton Chigurh on the road. Friendly chicken farmer stops by who tells him to go, if he wants to get on an airport, he, he should go to El Paso. This is another thing that I'm talking about of like Chigurh immediately being like, what Brolin is going to do next is try and get out of the country or at least get mm. on a plane and get out of here to be as far away as possible. And so his next step is, well, I'm going to pretend I have a broken down car. I'm going to wait for someone <laughs> to come by and rely on Southern hospitality mm -hmm. and kill that person, steal their chicken, chicken, Ute. Uh, <laughs> Make sure they then, get the chickens off it before I do that. Yeah. yeah. And then- <laughs> and Can you get the chickens off the car? Why does, why does he need the chickens to be off the car? I think it'd just be, you know, slowing him down a bit. I don't I, think he likes mess. I think he'd find that messy. I, I, he does clean He does clean the back of the, the with all the feathers. Yeah, there. he hates that. I so think he kills all those chickens. I think you're, no, I think he just leaves them on the side of the street. I think he leaves them on the side of the street. I think you're 100% right, but my headcanon is he's afraid of, he's afraid of them. He's afraid of chickens. <laughs> it's Because he shoots that bird earlier. That is true. There so is that he scene doesn't where he, like birds. He doesn't they like birds. They challenge his philosophy. So <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know how. He keeps asking birds to flip a coin. <laughs> Call it. Call it. <laughs> Call it, damn it. Whereas a cat's like... Nothing can be freer than me. <laughs> a cat hits the coin over. Hang on. Sorry. <laughs> if the rule that brought you <laughs> brought you to this of what you... Oh, uh, oh. hey, hey, come back. Come on. <laughs> if, right, if it brought you to this, what you were supposed to rule? <laughs> yep. Challenged uh, by the birds. <laughs> Do we also get in this scene a chat with the chicken farmer guy um, where he asks him if he's like, I mean, actually, no, hang on. I just realised why that happens. I was about to be like, again, focusing on why, how this guy ended up here. Like, are you from this area? The reason he wants to know is so he can find out about the airport. Yeah, I just, yeah, I just yeah. answered, but I thought yeah, 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 that's why. Like, <laughs> He's not suddenly like, interested I'm, about another human being. No, but then being. I was like, maybe, I mean, you know, the guy being like, how'd you end up here? It's like, oh, you married, like, as in he kind of is, he actually is somewhat interested in people's journeys to get to a certain spot. But yeah. in this case, He's that's not what's happening. He literally just wants to know where the airport is. He's yeah. looking for a plane. I was reading, that was my year nine English I think, essay I think on <laughs> No Country for Old Men. I Absolutely. Thank you for listening to my story. <laughs> now we see Brolin, um, he gets hit on by a lady, uh, uh, he gets hit her. on by a lady by a pool at a motel in El Paso, who, to be fair, if you see Josh Brolin walking down the street, Absolutely, but she's she's so far away from him and is immediately like, "Hey, you want to have sex?" Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm seeing she sees him though because she references um him looking out the window all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's yeah been, you're right. She's you're been right, looking right. for him. Yeah, yeah, this is a weird. This is a big old time jump. This little sequence. Yeah, you've got, well, like, now the movie moves in these big sequences of time, like we're yeah, jumping, yeah. jumping, jumping. But yeah, I love her as well. I want to hang out with that. And lady. apparently, apparently, Josh Brolin was like, "I only talked to that uh, lady once. She was only on set, set for a day." but he was really nervous talking. Like he was like, she kind of really like got me a little bit. Like, and you see him laugh in that scene. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, kind of real though. Like kind of was like, like I'm married, I'm married, I'm married. But yeah. And also her thing of like- Would go. You, would, would go. You can stay married. I'll bring the pool, uh, the beers out by the pool. Yeah. I just, she's just seems yeah. like, I, 
I, look, I know what happens after. I, I know what happens after a few beers. And she goes, the thing that happens after a few beers, more, more beer. beers. I, yeah, she was cool as hell. Yeah, yeah, she seems like a nice lady. Yeah, she she is. Uh, she uh, the whole point of this movie, this sequence, is that you're sad to miss out on this sequence. But I honestly think that they could have just left the camera rolling just a little bit for me. Just a little bit. Well, apparently in the book. I'm not, uh, and I have not checked this. Mm. He goes in and has an affair with that lady, oh. and then there's like a like a whole thing, and then you, he ends up dead. I got the vibe he was um, gonna. I got the vibe he was gonna. Oh, from yeah. that scene. You guys, you guys I, thought I, that. I, I like Absolutely. that you don't. You just thought they were gonna have beers. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I saw he, his reaction and his kind of like I. It's deliberately left ambiguous for a reason. I think because then you don't want to like make that judgment because you obviously got a lot of stuff with Kelly McDonald after mm. you've got to kind of kind of believe in their marriage a little bit. But I also got the vibe that I'm not surprised that in the book that happens because yeah. I was like, this is up in the air. Yeah, you know? the, ambigu- he- the ambiguity of it, I think is really nice in this, mm. in, in the, the Coen Brothers version. Not for a moment did I think he was unfaithful. <laughs> really? Not for a second did it pass through my head. I thought they were just, I like the scene in my head is that they both sit by the pool and they're like, so what are you watching? What's up? What, what, what are you watching? Yeah, like they're talking about- 1980 on the run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're like, oh yeah, The Fugitive has just come out, the first episode of the TV series. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry? Do you like the Twilight Zone? Like, what are you just- what? I just was like, they're friends. I wanted to see them yeah, be yeah, friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, all that I, went through my brain. I'm so sorry. I just, I also was like, in the scope of this film- the moral dilemma of having an affair is so low on the list that I'm kind of like, even if he had an affair, he still comes across as one of the most ethically strong yeah, he also characters. He also like shoots a dog within five minutes that's in all, this movie. It's not immoral to shoot a dog that's trying to kill you. That's true. Um, I think, but I also, hold on, hold on. I have an argument for my They're Just Friends theory. The book literally... The book literally, but they, they deliberately left ambiguity. So I think it's, it's probably fair. I think hey, it's important. Art is, art is for us to interpret. It's not for us to be told told what to do by the man. I think if he sleeps with her and then is immediately uh, punished for it by dying, mm. the movie's a worse movie mm. because I think he is punished for his good act at the top, and there is no there is no moralistic. You do something wrong, you die in this movie. If he stays faithful and he just hangs out by the pool. And talks about TV and movies. <laughs> talks about the fugitive TV show, which everyone, everyone's raving hey, about. I think new- that actually didn't start to the 90s and I'm wrong. <laughs> I also think that your point makes sense to this because in this timeline, she's about, his wife is literally about to turn up. Like she actually turns up pretty quickly, right? Well, it, cu- it cuts again in time. We don't really know because the mm. next thing we see is Tommy Lee Jones coming to that motel several nights later and... Uh, Josh Bolland has already died. Um, it's like he's seeing the crime scene. It's like the next thing that we that we see. An incredible fate. And Kelly McDonald arrives then. But we see the woman dead in the pool, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's that. Late, it could be a later Tommy, scene, later day. Because yeah. Tommy Lee Jones is driving in. Then you see the cartel's car drive away, and then you see the woman face down in the pool. Yeah, so I assumed so it happened fairly... I think that's the same day or close. Yeah. I guess it could be weeks, it, though. But yeah, there's... there's She's and, always and by the pool. And this is the thing that, yeah. that now it's... Like, there's this... The movie kind of unravels entirely uh, on, on a timeline kind of capacity. It just goes... It just jumps. Because the one clue for time is that Beth Grant tells that one um, cartel member who- Where they're going. It's like, oh, there's a gentleman in in South Texas or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's the only time clue is that that happened- 
They find out directly before. Yeah, because she says we're going here. I reckon it all happens in one day. I really do. I, I, agree. I did not think that that happened over the course of a couple of days because in the timeline, she tells him we see them land to go there. She tells the cartel. Yeah. They, they do it. I think that he, you hear the gut, like in the shot, you see the cartel. They are the cartel. They're driving right? away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they drive away. So I think that they just miss, like it's actually the closest that Tommy Lee Jones gets to being there, like yeah, right. in the moment. Yeah. He's just a second late as opposed to a day late as he usually okay. has been. No, no, no. I think you're, yeah. You're and so I think in terms of this timeline, he when he says I'm waiting for my wife, he means she's about to arrive in like 10 minutes. But I think having that moment is just like, it's kind of just like a, Maybe a moment of normal, like, bantery vibe for Josh Brolin and, like, you know, like, it's kind of a... Yeah, you're you're yeah, lulled yeah. into a false sense of security of this kind of somewhat normal flirty boundary as with this woman in the pool. Yeah. He might get away with it. Boy, does he not get away with it. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible cut to of, like, suddenly there is a full crime scene. Everyone is dead. The, the woman he was just talking to is dead in the pool. Um, Tommy Lee Jones arrives uh, and then uh, looks at the crime scene, then immediately cuts to him looking at what you can only assume is Josh Brolin's dead body in the in the morgue. You never see his face. TLJ uh, then talks to another Texas sheriff about how the times they are are changing. They're like, can we see these people with green hair? Which is interesting, and I want to talk about it. It's a very Coen Brothers-y scene of like, it's quite funny, these mm-hmm. two kind of conservative old men. But I'm like, yeah, and that's also kind of the point of the movie is these conservative old men are actually right and there's no country for old men. And like, it's, it, is a, it is a more kind of interesting and kind of, uh, it, is a, it is a better movie than that, that simple a reading, but there is something there in that like, these guys who are on the way out have something that Anton Sugar doesn't and I, Josh Brolin. I, I, I think I disagree. I, I did not get that reading either. You go first. Um, I This is also something, like, I watched a lot of analysis, analyses of this, and the one that I really liked is more related directly to the dream and the conversation he has with his former boss, the sheriff, mm. where the sheriff tells a story, and we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but it's important to sort of get the context yeah. of this take on the movie, tells a story about how... 50, 60 years ago, because Tommy Lee Jones is always talking about how, like, the old boys didn't have to carry guns. Yeah. Right? Mm. Anthony, Anthony Griffith, is it? Uh, who got murdered and then died slowly over the course of a day in the arms of his wife. Yeah. And he's like, what you're feeling is nothing new. This mm. has always been the case. There is always the feeling that the world is ending and this is the worst it's ever been. But imagining that it all sits on your shoulders or it's never been like this is vanity. Yeah. So I think the point of this conversation is to, this is the point where Tommy Lee Jones decides to retire. Clearly this is the bit that hits him and he's like, I'm never going to be able to stem this tide. It's always getting worse. Well, there's that incredible, incredible moment. Sorry. Uh, he's what goes back to the crime scene and then Javier Bardem is like, behind the wall and it's this incredible it's like a psycho Hitchcock yeah, shot yeah, yeah. it's just like a slash of light against his face and his face looks fucking weird um, and you just see Tommy Lee standing there and then it's like he goes in and was Javier Bardem ever even there Crazy. Mm. like it's this like f- gone full mm. off off the deep end surrealism like was that character even there like yeah. it's kind of it's it is, it, I, is, it is brilliant see my kind of take is obviously similar to that in terms of like that idea of being like 
back like back in my day it wasn't like this and it's like and the kids these days are wrong and it's like no no it's always kind of wrong and you're just like get like that thing where it's always kind of been like that and you're no different and it's not like they're different at all it's just that they're now older and a different like and they're not kind of seeing it's sort of it's repeats itself yeah I that's what that. I, what I, I think, think yeah the, the thing that um kind of I, I was, i've been kind of wrestling with is like anton sugar is a foreign agent like mm. doesn't have an american accent is not American, doesn't look like an American. And he is also this force of full evil. Mm-hmm. And our lead character, our kind of, prota- Tommy Lee Jones is kind of our protagonist of mm. the movie, who's, um, is um, lamenting the fact that this foreign agent has invaded their soil. And there's something in there that kind of gives me a little bit of the ick in terms of like, I know that Chigurh, and also in the book, this is not the case because he's like, they don't, there is no description of where he's from. Mm. And he's supposed to be kind of a cowboy guy, I think. But in the movie, he is decidedly not. He is foreign. And that is an interesting choice as to what it's saying about this horrible, destructive choice. And the thing of like, this movie is obviously a reference to Westerns and the, uh, like a lot of Westerns being about the end of the wild, wild West, right? Mm. And this movie is kind of about the end of this style of civilization and the oncoming neoliberal capitalist um thing that is going to happen like that's kind of the push the the push from the like late 70s into the 80s and the explosion of you know you know that american lifestyle and i think movie saying that that is like a horrible kind of like oncoming storm that is going to take over all of our sense of decency and dignity and all of those things and there's there's something in there and i'm not like i i i also don't think that like any movie should be read like as one you know reading that's like simple but it's just something in the movie that has like i've i've been troubling with i think that that's kind of meant to be from Tommy Lee Jones's character's perspective, sort of that's meant to be what he thinks until the end of the film when he realises that every single example of violence that he's been giving his monologues has actually been from locals. You know, it's been the kid that I knew from down here. It's been like, and you see Woody Harrelson, you see that actually it's not, and the fact that he's just like, yeah, you know, this guy died here. It's everything is, he's like trying to treat it like this burst of violence is something that's completely outside of his hometown. When actually, no, it's not. It's always been here. It's just as bad here. And really putting the blame onto like Chigurh is not necessarily correct. It's all as bad as each other and who is worse and what is his way of dealing with things worse than Woody Harrelson's character. I view it like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want Does to, that make sense? It absolutely makes yeah, sense. I want to but build, I understand what you're saying as well. I want to build off that idea because this is a theory that I saw. I think, you know, a lot of film theories and probably going to hate this. It's a kind of title that you would normally be like, this is the worst clickbaity um, title. There is a great YouTube video by this guy named what is uh, his account is what is anti logic and I just want to credit him, which is Anton Chigurh isn't real. Now that sounds like classic sort of like mm-hmm. ashes in a coma. Ash Ketchum. Ash Ketchum. Ash, Ash Ketchum went to a coma when Pikachu struck him at lightning, fighting all those uh, Spearos because <laughs> the tone of the entire thing changes. Welcome to Anime Corner. Back- what? <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole theory. Yeah. Sorry, what? There, there's a very famous uh, internet theory when. Uh, it did the rounds in like 2008, like cool. when this movie came out. I'm catching up. Uh, where that, uh, because the first two, the first episode of the Pokemon anime has a complete, a very different, more serious tone than the rest of the anime. Not, not super serious, but it feels very different. And it's Ash, 
Ash got hit, Ash by, a got hit by a lightning bolt and went into a coma. Nurse Joy and uh, Officer Jenny are all the same because it's the police from his oh, hometown. Okay. And like he can, he will always be this age because he's always in a coma. He's always on an adventure. He could only ever end this coma when this is a different film theory. I'm about- going to be an Ash Ketchum truther from now on. <laughs> right. This theory is uh, that Anton Chigurh isn't real. I actually kind of love this interpretation. Because it does frame it in this time, and Tommy Lee Jones is constantly following, mm-hmm. and he doesn't have, he never sees Anton, he never even really hears of Anton's name. He's just trying to put together what this monster is in his head. And mm. so, Anton Chigurh, in this interpretation, which is the, the bit that this guy, uh, this uh, creator brings up that really sold it to me, is that door opening where he's not there. Mm-hmm. And it is, I don't think, you know. The movie's the movie as it is. You don't have to watch it and imagine that yeah, it doesn't happen. That, the thing about that smells like um, Lydia Tarr falls over and hits her head unconscious and then the third act of that movie doesn't actually take well, that's, place. That, yeah, that's, but it could be that he's exaggerated in Tommy Lee Jones's head and then when his, his co-worker says to him, like, actually, it's always been like this. In Like, you are putting this weird rose-coloured glasses on this country that has already always been bad, always been violent. Yeah, and, and he's, like, trying to disassociate from that. I kind of think... Maybe, I don't believe that Anton Chigurh is... Is not there. I think he is, but I think it could be argued that he's like, he's this like kind of villain that comes from outside of his town, is you know a, a bigger threat. But actually, all the violence is taking place here. It's already happened. That's not how it is. And I, I guess the coding of him being foreign is um, is problematic, but I think it is specificity of it being him being outside of the. Because the Coens talk a lot about getting the regionality right. Mm. And I don't think it's because they need it to be just the American region, but it's the context of the human world versus the alien world. And Anton has to be, and there are like legit, there are big kookier film theories out there that Anton is a alien, just, you know, the same same thing with Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko. S. Darko, S- a Donnie Darko story? S, S- country for all <laughs> Darkos. Um uh, he, he Anton Chigurh is this insane. Take me to your old man. <laughs> so, <laughs> got him. No planet for old aliens. Yeah. Um, uh, the, 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 Wait, the, I, sorry, sorry. I'm just like just doing that theory. Like, do they think like Anton Chigurh is gonna like go back to his home planet and be like? <laughs> I found these cool things called coins. Uh. <laughs> I, I, I didn't read those theories. I listened to a good one. But there, yeah, it is. It, he's, I think it's something about like his, his constant questioning and fascination of human cultures because he's trying to gain information. I'm not saying it's a good theory. It's yeah, no okay. Ash Ketchum is in a coma. Um, but the, the, the idea of him being coma. a inhuman embodiment of evil. That exists more the way, in Tommy the Lee Jones's mind. That, the way that you represent that on screen is with this like Spanish foreign man. Spanish man. <laughs> Spanish man. It's like I mean I don't think there's any good way to do it, but it's like there's there's there is something there. There is like a there is an ickiness there, and mm. and I don't think it's like I don't think it's purposeful. I think it's in like the subconscious of the film. Yeah, is, is has got and I think it's like probably more. Cormac McCarthy than it is the Collins. Well, it is, it is also that I think that the, the 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 question becomes if you do like that interpretation of it, it is some way it is to some degree um, being extrapolated in an, uh, through the lens of Tommy Lee Jones. It kind of makes sense that this is a story. You know, it's the metatextual thing of like this. This is a st- this is a Western story that's trying to imagine what the death of the Western is. 
um, this is what the death of the Western would look like to someone who lives in the world of a Western. Um, what? And how does it how does it change when Mark Strong plays that character? I think, <laughs> oh, mate, it's bloody great, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but I mean, but I, Mark I, Strong I, I walks in. Hello. I absolutely see what you're saying, and I do agree there is a level of ickiness yeah. to that. But I do think that actually, I think that that is when I think when they did cast and they kind of went with this this vision. I think that you're not meant to be like fuck, like Tommy Lee was right. The kids are wrong and like anyone coming out of here is like, I think that genuinely that's not, yeah, it's kind of okay I also don't think that's to I'm represent saying. characters who have problematic views like that, particularly oh, in course. this context. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, no, no, I'm not being like, I don't, I'm not like, oh, the movie thinks that Tommy Lee Jones is always right. Okay. I'm just saying there is like, there's something at the heart of this movie. There is an essential kind of like, and it's like, I think it's playing with it, uh, but there is like this reactionary conserva conservative kind of like, mm, Kind of old values. Old values. Some, there's something. Your there. father carries the father. Uh, your, yeah. Your father e carries yeah. The even fire that stuff. Even the dream is like it's this very kind of old school way of thinking. And I think but he gets kind of shut down by his mate with the million cats. Again, cats. cats. Uh, and you know the. Well, let's jump to that scene because we're pretty yeah. much there. We're pretty uh, much the there. only thing. Uh, no, he goes there directly now. He talks to his old friend Ellis, played by Barry Corbin, absolute mm -hmm. huge guy. Um, they talk about dealing with violence and revenge. Um, and he says, it's not all waiting on you. That's vanity. It's a wonderful scene. It's wonderfully written. And you're right. He, like, he does say that your worry about this. Yeah. I mean, that scene, that scene's, a, yeah, I think tough for, tough for me to read because it's like, it, he's saying like all of this, all of your worry about this is vanity, right? Of like you believing that everything changing is vanity, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Which is, yeah, good. Yeah. Good movie. Yeah, good yeah, movie. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's all it, it it is all in. Look, regardless of whether it is intentionally or subconsciously ick, I think it's at least in conversation with the ick. With yeah, its I own think. Ick. Yeah, I think it is in conversation with its own ick. Um, but I I wonder where the line is drawn. Where yeah, where where it wants to to what it thinks about its own ickiness. Beth Grant's character has unfortunately passed away. We cut to her her funeral, yeah. RIP. Kelly McDonald uh, cries at the funeral. She comes back home. She finds Sugar in her house. He's sitting down on a chair. Um, <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of gives her, her, her this philosophy about the coin and the thing mm -hmm. and the coin came to me in the same way that I came. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. It's also kind of my- uh, he, was in, he was in someone's pocket. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is a little bit of, uh, and this is silly. There's a little bit of a problem that I have with this one was when I saw it when I was 13 or whatever, I was like, Anton Chigurh is so smart. And so, and like, now I'm like, that doesn't make- any fucking sense. Like nothing he says actually like has, to be fair, has to an be fair, ethical she, framework. That's what she that's says. What she no, says I, and I know. <laughs> I don't think I we're supposed that. to think that he's that smart. <laughs> I, I, no, I understand, I understand that he's supposed to be, but it's like the whole thing is based on nothing. There's no like, like uh, you know, a super villain sort of thing. Uh, even even do Dennis you know Hopper. A, do you know what a bomb is that hasn't blown up? Yeah. It's a waste of potential. Do you know what a coin is that hasn't been flipped? Yeah. And I think that's my problem with it. It's like the movie is so smart and that character is, is kind of shown to be very, uh, at least kind of capable. And then his whole thing is about as smart as Dennis Hopper's philosophy in speed. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah me and the coin. And it's like, it's the two-faced thing, obviously. It's the like, uh, the, you know, different philosophies, but it's like, yeah, it's like a weird supervillain philosophy. Yeah. It's not, 
it doesn't feel, and it's also my thing about that, that thing where people say he's the most accurate version of a psychopath ever. I'm like, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like that just fully doesn't mean any. That doesn't, that, that is, yeah. One of the things, and you know, this is just a part of my experience with this movie that I probably um, should have talked about earlier is like my mom saw this movie. She was a uh, trained psychiatrist. She worked in prisons for a long time. She worked with a lot of psychopaths and her take on this was like, He's not the best psychopath I've ever seen because psychopaths generally enjoy themselves more. It doesn't seem like he's having a... He's, he's having a bad time. It, doesn't, he, he, it just seems like he's having a wet time. He just looks like he's generally, generally uncomfortable and just sort of going with I it. I think he's enjoying himself in the coin toss scene in the roadhouse. That's yeah. where you see... I think we've seen this character on the back foot for the first time ever. So yeah. I think that they had peppered that in, but then I think it's sort of like what happens when she'd actually like you have to kind of it's a bit of a nuisance you know like and I, I feel like um that's kind of good because usually you'd have like Dennis Hopper style like loving the chaos of it you mm. know kind of like oh I've been thwarted like blah blah but it's kind of just this character sort of just like oh fuck's sake yeah. god like at, at a certain <laughs> point it does all become a bit of a bother to god him. and then it's like I'm just not done with this shit and I feel like this this ending is like him tying the bow you know I've got to Got to got to keep my word. Yeah, apparently in the book she does flip. Yeah, right. She agrees, and that seems longer, I think, in the book as yeah, well. Yeah, and she, she gets shot. Yeah, we um, assume that she gets shot. There's this, this, yeah, well, it's the incredible scene that he walks out of the house and checks his the, shoe, checks the shoe, and wipes the blood off yeah. his shoe, which is um, clever stuff. And then he drives away and he gets hit by a random car. Craig Berkey talked about this. He says uh, we helped out by slowly lowering the onboard car sounds throughout the scene, so it's like you mm. try, you focus the attention on Chigurh you think as you're he's driving. The movie. Yeah, and you're like, I guess that's the end Credit's of the movie, and then the car crash happens. And then Caleb Landry Jones and his friend come and help Chigurh out. Did you know it was Caleb Landry no, Jones? No, I did not. Yeah, it's Laundry Bag Jones. Wow. Um, what what are had, they in? He's in um, uh, Get Out. He's the brother in Get Out. Oh. He, he's in uh, Twin Peaks The Return. He's the the quintessential, you want a, a freaky white guy? <laughs> now, I'm, I guess you get him or Bill Skarsgård. So Chigurh pays a kid for his shirt and walks off into the distance. Um, and then Tommy Lee Jones chats with his wife about the afterlife. And he talks about his father and a dream and he saw his father um, in the distance and then he knows that he's waiting for him. Mm. And then he says, and then I woke up and then the film ends with a ticking clock sound. I think implying time is running out for these styles of people, these people that do good in the world. Um, I somehow did not even notice the clock. Mm. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's like... It's this ticking clock that ends the movie that for me says, and that's that this this type of human, this type of uh, person is now their time is running out. There is no country for old men. And I'm like, okay. Could it not be that like his time's running out, but time continues going for everyone else? Could sure. you read it that way? Could because I feel like way. it's sort of like if a clock keeps on ticking, a light goes off, the, the thing goes off. It's kind of like, again, it's just going to continue the same way. Okay. Like nothing will really change about humanity. Apparently a thing about um, Cormac McCarthy, I haven't read a single book of his, but I heard people talk about this, mm -hmm. is that he tends to pick up the sort of thematic endings of previous books and then sort of... Of like his previous books. his previous and books then go, and then go oh, forward. So in The Road, apparently the dad, the son keeps on going, uh, how, why do we keep going on? Why do we keep going on? And the dad goes, because we are the, whole, we are the carriers of the fire. So... Right. Even if the point of this is time is running out, Cormac then went on to write a um, post-apocalyptic movie where there's still guys like this. Yeah. They just keep going. I don't think his point is that it's going to end. I think maybe 
that's where this book then ends up. But if we were doing the road tomorrow, then we could find out. But yeah, I think it is interesting, at least in the context of you're always running that fire ahead. I don't Mm. know. Yeah, and yeah, I, I want to be clear. My, my idea is not to like problematize this movie no, and no, like no. Make, and be like, man, it's bad. I'm just like, there's something in this movie that makes me uncomfortable, and maybe that is a, a boon of the movie. Maybe yeah. that's good, but it's yeah, it's just something that I've kind of been thinking about a lot in the past couple of days. Um, that's the end of the movie. That's the end of the movie. No Country for All Men. Um, five stars. <laughs> yeah. Um, in general, though, is it better than Holes? Uh, yes, this yeah. movie is better than Holes. Yeah, it's better than Holes. This, this movie, movie is, is yeah. exceptional. Unfortunately, yeah, uh, Holes, can't, Holes can't, cannot win them all. <laughs> Holes can't win them all. Has Holes won against any of Beth Grant's films that we've done? No. 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 So well, Holes actually hasn't won a single I think we've been thing. talking about in general is we don't only want to cover the good movies, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Uh, also, we've done three fairly bro movies. We want to avoid that fa- <laughs> fairly quickly. Um, although- This is probably the bro somehow. This is- this is the Donnie Darko's pretty bro Donnie Darko's pretty, pretty bro No! No Country for Old Men is like film bro, Oscar. Actually, yeah. they're all bro. Speed's yeah. a fucking- yeah, Speed is Speed's a bro When you Speed's <laughs> the least bro film you've done, you know you've made maybe an error. You've maybe made a podcast but, for bros. Hey, I mean, I back our choices because Beth Grant has such an important role to play in all three of these films. Beth Grant is incredible and it's really sad to be coming to an end on her i would like to play a game mm-hmm. um real quick it's an extremely simple quick game and it's just shamus why are you pulling out a monopoly board <laughs> pulling out a coin oh god <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> and i'm gonna ask you how much have you ever won on a podcast okay what what, what am i what am i playing for between the two uh, you don't get to know <laughs> i need you to call it okay wait who calls it who would like to? I'll call it. You call it? Oh, God. Fuck it, all right. <laughs> all right. Okay, flip it. You call it? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's going to be um, heads. Tails. Fuck. <laughs> 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 what? Uh, if you can't so, see on the camera, you might want to show that to the camera. Shamus has pulled out a uh, copy of uh, the British office. <laughs> So I guess the answer to how much have you ever won on a coin toss is the first season of the British office. It's the Christmas special. So Oh, it's only it's a one episode. What happened here is I was, I was I was going to go and buy a copy of No Country for Old Men from the local bookstore. That would make sense. It was gonna make sense. And then I asked them if they had it and it was out of stock. And I was like, oh, I'll just go to another bookstore. And then they had a different Wait, why are you going to bookstores to buy DVDs? Well, no, because I was going to buy a copy of the book. Oh, I thought okay. that would be fun to give us a book and a movie podcast. Can However, you at the bookstore, they had a different Cormac McCarthy book, which I almost bought. But then I saw they had just these ran- this random little shelf of shitty DVDs. And I saw that there was the, Christ- the Office in there. And we <laughs> talked about Beth Grant having a wonderful episode <laughs> of The American of the Office. American office. Uh-huh. And I saw that there and uh-huh. I was like, this would be the perfect present. <laughs> I honestly think my favourite. Congratulations, Charles. You Wait, do, have, do I win? Yeah, you, you win this. Yeah. This oh, is yours forever. No, I wasn't going to keep it. Now, I did make a decision. <laughs> you also spelled callback with a K. <laughs> I thought I it would. <laughs> you spelled callback with a K. It is a signed copy. Uh, it's a <laughs> he died. I didn't know that when I signed it. That's why I had such a horror. I didn't mention it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I didn't know that. (laughs) And I was not going to mention it until I was just going to try and get through this bit without us ever looking at the back of that DVD cover. (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> so the most that I've ever won in a coin toss. <laughs> Have you ever watched someone get fired in real time? <laughs> so much. <laughs> um, I may never recover the fact that you have done a fake signature of Cormac McCarthy and spelt it wrong. I didn't know. He, I didn't know. Quickly going back to No Country for Old Men, do we think this is Javier Bardem's best performance as a villain or do you think he's better in Skyfall? I think he's better as King Triton in The Little Mermaid. <laughs> the real villain of all. He is the real villain of that movie. This is his best performance. It is. Okay, so out of these three films... What do you think has the best rewatchability out of the Beth Grant series? Speed. Speed. And or Donnie Darko. Actually, I could rewatch Donnie Darko a lot. I mean, I, they're all incredible. No Country for All Men is just, for me, I, I find it so devastating and sad. I, don't, like, I don't want to watch it every I'm day. I'm not going to watch this for another 10 years. Yeah. Until we have to do another podcast for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, um, emergency, <laughs> No Country for Old Men. <laughs> yeah, there's a DVD copy of it behind glass. <laughs> we need a good film. <laughs> we've run, yeah, we've, we've run, run out. out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Watch, we've, watched, we've watched every single movie. It's been a pleasure covering Beth, though, because yeah, honestly, out of all three of these films, I'm going to say my favourite performance from Beth comes from Donnie Darko. 100%. And that's just because it's it's uh, probably, she gets the most to do. I think she really the drives. performance, yeah. A lot of that. She's also very good in this, and she's good in everything she does. Speed, she doesn't get a lot to work with, but she also does a lot of good, good stuff with that. It's been a pleasure to cover her because she's just one of those people uh, that is in so many good things. And as Lincoln has been desperate to do, uh, like a million more Beth Grant films, Let's I think five we have more. unfortunately run five out more years. Five more <laughs> years. Doing the Richard Nixon six, thing. Six seasons and the movie yeah, of six, Beth Grant yeah, yeah. and the Christmas uh, special. Uh, <laughs> Signed no. by no one. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the movies that we were, were on the shortlist to do were Little Miss Sunshine, but I do think that the, uh, maybe the Donnie Darko Little Miss Sunshine character are quite in a similar world, potentially. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm Little Miss Sunshine is still in my top ten movies ever made. I adore that movie, mm. but she's probably smaller in it. She's and at maybe the, one she's day at we'll the, come um, back. The beauty pageant at the end, right? Yeah, That's she's the beauty pageant organizer, and I think she's exceptional in that as well. I, I, I also have like a little. I'm going to really miss Beth. Like, that's the thing I'm feeling moving on from this is like, it's going to be sad to watch another movie and not just see her in it. Like, mm. I know it's also like, all, yeah, all we've been doing for like yeah. five or six weeks is watching movies yeah. with Beth Grant and be watching then for some reason watching Speed 2, Cruise Control. <laughs> I'm going to be watching movies now and just be like, where's Beth for the rest of my life? Well, the exciting news is the person that we are covering next, we are going to cover some selected works of Hector Elizondo. Incredible actor, huge career. Um, I think, can I say the, the yeah. what we're going to cover? Absolutely. The, I believe what we're going to do is The Taking of Pelham 123, Paul Schrader's American Gigolo, and Pretty Woman. And then maybe... We might throw in the Princess Diaries. I'm just going to say that now because I'm a little stinker. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, for I have one last thing. Oh, well, fuck you. <laughs> it's going to be another game. No, <laughs> it's, just a it's just a quote that I'd love from Beth Grant that I'd love to right. end on yeah, just because it is fully the theme of this podcast, which is just her talking about her entire career. And she says, frequently over the years, people have thought that they know me. Every character actor has this story, I'm sure. It goes like this. Um, do you play soccer? Uh, did you go to such and such church? I knew you when you were with so-and-so. And then I go, well, sorry. And then they say, wait a minute, are you an actor? <laughs> That's great. Yep. Yeah. That's the thing. The point of the whole podcast. That's the podcast. Well, thank you so much for joining us for our Beth Grant <laughs> miniseries. It's been an absolute pleasure. We are huge fans of Beth Grant's work. And please, please check out all of her films. 
There's heaps of them, so I hope you have a lot of time. <laughs> if you like what you've seen so far, you can find more content and please give us a follow and a like and a subscribe. All that stuff really helps. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube and Twitter. We're at Supporting Cast Pod. We'll see you next time. I'm excited. What will I win at a coin toss? <laughs> Tune in to see.